Do you like exclusive stuff? Yes, yes sir. sir. Do you like having access to your favourite podcast hosts in a way like never before? Yeah, absolutely. Do you wish you had access to our old Survivor Oz episodes that you can't find anywhere else online? Oh, yeah. If you answered yes to one, two or all of those questions, then get excited because the Oz Network is now on Patreon. <laughs> That's right, your favourite podcast has jumped on the Patreon bandwagon to enable a better listening experience for you, our listener. For more details, simply head to www.patreon.com forward slash oznetwork where you can sign up for as little as $3 a month. It'll be the best decision you make since that last bad one you made. You're listening to the Oz Movies Podcast, only on the Oz Network. We are back on the Oz Network for our third Australia versus Canada film, our second Australian film, as we talk about that Baz Luhrmann classic that everybody's been wanting to hear about, Australia. Um, I thought we were doing Strictly Ballroom. Ah, damn. Strictly Ballroom. All right. Ben's reminding his picks here. I know, I don't know, I don't know. This is um, 2008, so 15th anniversary of Australia. And as we established off air, or maybe on air, we don't know, uh, the highest budgeted nah, Australian next, film. Mad, Mad Max will cost more to make. And that's more of an Australian e- film than this. <laughs> so. e- e- either way, neither film was even financed by Australians. So <laughs> we're stretching it. But uh, we've talked about doing this movie for a couple of years, and we're finally here. Uh, Ben's finally here, and I've been dreading it. Um, but maybe I'm not going to be dreading it by the end of this. I don't know. In some ways, I feel like this movie is better than I remember it being. In some ways, it was definitely not. Um, but my name is Colin, and I'm not block... Great quote. Love it. My name is Colin, and I'm not black fella. I'm not white fella either. That You sound very much like him. And my name is Ben, and I wouldn't have it on with you if you were the only tart left in Australia. Oh, hang on, should I, should I put that in an overhyped Australian accent that sounds like The Simpsons? <laughs> oh, I wouldn't have it off with you if you were the only like, tart left in Australia. Jazz was it. Because that's how even the Australians speak in this film. <laughs> <laughs> now, this movie, uh, we talked about it a little bit um, in the lead up, I guess, last week and even the week prior to that. Uh, this was obviously a huge deal in Australia. I mean, I remember being a huge deal here. I remember when this announced, because this is Baz Luhrmann. I'm trying to think, did he make anything after Moulin Rouge before no. this? This got to be something, nothing. So yeah, we're looking at like seven years in between Baz Luhrmann films. And Moulin Rouge was basically him at like the, the height of his success. And he basically says, I can do whatever I want in Hollywood now. So I want to go back to Australia, Australia. Uh, 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 <laughs> uh, he wants to go back to Australia and make a film about Chazwazers, which evolved into this. Um, so, I mean, I, I don't know how much of a bigger deal this was. I remember all the talk of, yeah, Russell Crowe's going to do it, and then Heath Ledger's going to do it, and then, he, oh, Hugh Jackman's the only guy who will sign on to it. But I can only imagine, I mean, outside of North America, uh, Australia, I mean, this must have been like, biggest movie that anybody had ever heard of there. Yeah, I I actually remember the years leading up to this when it was being talked about because I think, you know, he was it was always a big deal in Australia before Moulin Rouge, but obviously Moulin Rouge made him a bigger deal. And then I think kind of everyone was always talking about what's his next project going to be, what's his next project going to be. And I remember it being a few years prior to this when it was announced that, like, Baz Luhrmann is doing this epic feature based on Australian history. Like, they didn't really say what it was at the time. 
and it was going to have Nicole Kidman and Russell Crowe in it. And then uh, there was like footage leaked or something like they were out in the outback and they were filming it. And, and I think if you read through a lot of the history of it, a lot of it was rumoured and I think Baz Luhrmann wanted to do it kind of on the first fleet, which is sort of, you know, the group of boats that discovered Australia, sort of Captain Cook and all that kind of fun stuff. But then he obviously shifted it a little bit more to World War Two and sort of the stolen generation story. So I remember when all of that was sort of announced and then it was all in the media when Russell Crowe pulled out. Like it was a big deal. They were like, oh, Baz Luhrmann's biggest epic, you know, Russell Crowe's pulled out. And you read through the history with Russell Crowe and it's rumored that he was fired, but then he just couldn't get it. Like there's all different things there. And then, yeah, Heath Ledger, I think, was attached. But I don't know how close Heath Ledger got to being in this film. I think it was just a name. Because this is now a movie that I honestly can't imagine. Like, Hugh Jackman's perfect for this film. Like, can yeah. you... Russell Crowe would not have... Like, I love Russell Crowe, but he does not fit this film in this type of role. And Heath Ledger, I think, would be too young, I think, maybe. Mm. Like, he always had that baby face, didn't he? But anyway... But it was a massive deal. And then in the lead up when it came out, like it was the excitement around it. I mean, that, that Oprah episode was like a very big deal because everyone in Australia is like, oh, this is the first time Oprah's ever done an episode like on an entire country. And then like in Qantas did tie-ins and then like they did all these tie-ins where basically it was like a tourism campaign around it. And they had like ads around the world for it. The, the little boy in it, the, the little Aboriginal boy, he was like a huge deal for about five minutes. I don't think I've heard from him since this film. <laughs> Um, and just like everything around it. And the, the feeling was always that this was a failure. It didn't live up to what it was hyped up to be. And I think a lot of people were like, oh, the, the investment in this, you know, didn't bring out uh, the, the tourists and all this kind of stuff. And again, I, I, I don't really have those figures to back that up, but I, I think we'll talk about this. And I don't think it was an out and out failure because Baz Luhrmann is always like, I want to make a modern day Gone with the Wind. I want to make mm-hmm. a, golden, a modern epic. And, I say this now, like 15 years after having watched this, like it's it's just fun. It's just kind of like harmless, epic action. It's got problems, don't get me wrong. But like I think the fact that it didn't live up to this like titanic hype that they were trying to put it up to, I mean, you're never going to live up to that hype. But for a film like this that is, you know, got a, a fair chunk of accuracy to it, some of it, like with the... <laughs> the historical bit, particularly around the war, even though there's stuff that's not, I think it kind of paints a bit of a picture around a pretty dark past of, of Australia's history when we, you know, took young Aboriginal children away from their families and we we're going to breed the black out of you. That legitimately was a government <laughs> policy. Um, you know, things like that. I think it does a job. And I think I was trying to explain this. I met out with Jared last night, uh, as you saw. He, he wasn't was, busy. He wasn't busy. Um, and I sort of talking did, did, did Brooke Scullion come along? Because Jamie's like, Ben's got a new girlfriend. And I look at him like, <laughs> no, 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 that was just that somebody interviewed. <laughs> she did technically ask to marry me in that interview. So that's why that like little <laughs> section wasn't a joke. But um, I was sort of explaining about seeing this. And you, you know, a weird movie that this kind of does remind me of. And you're going to laugh at this because it's completely not related. But it kind of reminds me of like The Mummy. Like The Mummy <laughs> is like this modern take on like an old genre where it's silly, it's a bit over the top, like the special effects kind of, they work, but they don't. And it's just like, it's just a bit of fun. The actors seem to be having fun. It's just, I feel the filmmakers know what they're making. And this is what I think Australia is. Like, it's just, it is kind of like a modern take on the 30s and 40s massive blockbuster with a bit of fun, a bit of camp, a bit of like Mills and Boone style silliness on it. 
But like, I don't know. I just enjoy it. Like, this didn't feel like it went for three hours. I'm sure you're going to complain about the length, but I don't know. At the end of the day, well, long-winded rant from long-winded rant <laughs> from where the success and the the hype of it to Ben's feelings on it. Like, I still enjoy this film. I think it's just it's a harmless piece of fun, and it holds up. I think 15 years later, controversial. I don't know. I, I think some parts do. Uh, I don't think the effects definitely uh, do. Uh, the, the sequence that I was really excited to talk about, the, the major cattle drive sequence on the cliffs, there's parts of that where I'm like, wow, this still looks great. And then the parts where I'm like, ooh, that's some bad green stream there. Oh, Jack Thompson uh, <laughs> tried to look young. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to talk about Jack Thompson's horse riding. We already talked about that off air. But uh, like I, I think you mentioned like Gone with the Wind. And, and I don't know whether I knew that much about what his intentions were when he made this movie. But when I saw this, the first thing I thought of is like, oh, he's trying to do Australian Gone with the Wind, you know? And I think story-wise, he mostly captures that. I mean, the criticism in this movie could be it's too simple of a story, it's too old-fashioned, but that really is what he's going for. Uh, I think that this is a movie that is very much stuck in between Baz Luhrmann making a Baz Luhrmann movie and Baz Luhrmann wanted to make a modern Gone with the Wind. And those two styles, there's times where it really clashes. Like the Baz Luhrmann you know, Moulin Rouge, um, Elvis style works for those fun sequences. But then you just have to start getting into the heavy stuff. It's like he basically stops using his style and just makes a straight movie. And that's where it's like, I'm watching two separate movies here. Th- and it, it, it's kind of, it's very distracting at times. And I think to an important thing, I think this is a movie that kind of fits in very distinct periods of filmmaking, if you think about it. Like, I mean, this is 2008. We're on the cusp of the superhero, you know, franchise sequel just domination Mm -hmm. that we've got today mixed with sort of like this almost like constant dark storytelling and the seriousness and all that sort of stuff we've got. Like, you don't really get like a fun-natured film like this. We, We talked about Top Gun Maverick, the reason why that is such a good film and why it's kind of going back to a certain style of film. I feel like this is kind of like the end of that era. Like, I mean... This almost feels like it could be a 90s film. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, it feels like it's about a decade too late. But th- that's where, like, I think I can kind of say, like, it's just enjoyable because I just feel you don't get a type of movie like this anymore. You know, like, these are the type of films that they do nowadays. Like, they always fail and they always t- try to take it a different direction. And I think even, like, the themes in this film, like, if they made this today, like, it's very important, I think, how they portray this. And I, from what I remember and from what I've read, this doesn't really get criticism for how it portrayed the, you know, the Indigenous and Aboriginal people storyline. I think it, it was, at the time, it was very much praised for the amount of Indigenous actors that they had in this film and, and you know, something like that. And I even read a review saying, you know, it might not be well received in Australia because Australia has a bit of an issue with dealing with, you know, its own issues like this and we sort of shy away from it. But... I never remember that being an issue around it. So it's kind of a bit ahead of its time. And I feel if you made this today, you would be going it a little bit deeper and darker. Like, remember when Green yeah, Book... Yeah, you wouldn't be able to do it now. Green Book got all the criticism because they felt yeah. like they, you know, watered down racism and they didn't make it like, you know, as deep and as, you know, realistic as they should have. Um, and I feel like this is kind of a way that way, but people didn't say this about Australia in 2008 where they would well, today. Yeah, because now the criticism and everything is it has to be a white, it's a white savior film. This is a white savior film. That's a white savior film. And I feel like if that's all you're making, then yeah, that's a problem. But the other issue being is that you can't just make a movie like this and just say, well, all the white people are horrible. Because if the point of making movies like this is to show people these are atrocities of the past, people have to change their ways. You can't have people change their ways if you're showing, well, none of the white people ever change their ways. So a movie like this, I think that's the biggest problem now is that in the end, the white people kind of come in and save the day, but 
that's one of the things I appreciated about this movie because you're you're showing people, hey, look, you can't be like everybody else. You've got to actually, you know, uh, pitch in and do your part. And it's not it's not necessarily. I think a lot of these movies get labeled as white savior films. It's not necessarily a white savior. It's a white person just doing what they can. A white person trying not to get in the way, trying not to be a complete jerk. You know. Yeah. Uh, but that would be the problem releasing this now. Is they say, oh, it's a white savior film. You'd have to change the ending and everything. But yet there are there are some things the way that they handle. Uh, the Aboriginal child in this movie, and uh, what do you, is it the lost or stolen generation? Because we have uh, a similar thing here. Stolen generation, yeah, yeah. The way that that's handled, there's 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 elements to this that I feel Baz Luhrmann didn't go hard enough on. Yeah, that I'm not talking about going darker, but I'm saying like you had something very clever to say here that maybe you're too timid it's, to go to. Which we're gonna get to the end of this that the 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 Snyder cut version of yeah. uh, Australia that's coming out. And I'm actually more interested in seeing that than I was to rewatch this. I think it it is interesting because you're kind of combining two very big moments in modern Australian history. And that is the stolen generation mixed with the bombing of Darwin. And, you, you know, how do you balance that? Like, I get they're kind of at the same time, so you can use the backdrop and, and Darwin and the Northern Territory is you know, where the majority of Indigenous people in Australia live and are from. Um so, you know, you can kind of connect the dots with that. But it's like, I think I remember when this came out, like it, it wasn't at the time, I think, really heavily promoted that the that bombing of Darwin was going to be involved in this because, I mean, it's a, it's a very big part of our history. It's the only time during any of the wars that like we were invaded, essentially. You know, this, this happened. Darwin was bombed just after Pearl Harbor. So it's kind of interesting how they balance it. And, you know, the white savior type complex, yeah, I get, the controversy around that, but I mean, you would argue in this film, is it really a white savior film? Cause I mean, at the end of the day, they kind of don't end up keeping the little boy, do they? Yeah. <laughs> like it's sort of, you know, I, I, I can see probably elements to it, but it's like, I would feel like the bombing of Darwin, like there's a whole movie in itself. And they kind of, that's just what, like a 10 minute sequence really. And I think like, this is a movie. Yeah. The story is a bit thin. Realistically, what is the plot of this film? Um, <laughs> it is one of these ones where it's kind of like, yeah, but, but again, this is another one of those films to me where it's like, you can sometimes have a plotless movie and it can still be fun. Like it still can just be enjoyable. Like I, I could put this on, on a next Saturday night and just watch it again and just have some fun with it. You know, uh, it's, there are certain movies that we've covered where I've said that and I'm like, yeah, I probably won't watch that for another 10 years. But kind of when I just rewatch this, it's just kind of like, yeah, like, like, this movie is actually like thoroughly enjoyable. And I think I had the mm-hmm. same feeling when I first watched it 15 years ago for just some reason. It's kind of almost like an avatar. I think people just forgot about this film. <laughs> I mean, you also said that this is only the second time you've ever watched it, right? Which is the same with me. We, yeah, I didn't even see the movie. Years in between it, and I don't know yeah, why I didn't here. see. Like, I like because it was so heavily promoted, and I would have been with Louise at the time, and I know her mum was like really into it, and like the promotion around. My mum was very like this is very much a my mum type film, and I think mm-hmm. like I tried to like go and see it with Louise and my mum and her mum, and just it just never happened. And I think I told the story last week, like it literally we had a, a video store closing down and they were just selling everything and they, you know, you could buy like 10, 20, whatever DVDs, like 50 bucks. And this movie yeah. had literally only been out for like a month when they did this. So we picked this movie up for like three or four bucks, brand new on DVD and like went home that night and watched it. I mean, that was similar. I think I told back in the Titanic recap, your favorite that never saw that at the movies, but this, the day it came out, like on video back then you saw it straight away. So, um, yeah, so you, you never saw this at the movies either because this is, this felt like one no. of those films where it was like everyone had to go see it at the cinema. 
Yeah, and I mean, when I was looking through this year, like the not this year, 2023, but 2008, uh, the amount of movies that I missed that year, I have to imagine that like my I didn't, <laughs> I either didn't have you know a movie theater close enough for my house, or I was too busy because there's a ton of the I, I saw Dark Knight, I saw Iron Man, I saw Indiana Jones. The rest of these, Quantum of Solace, I definitely saw most of these. I waited until came out on uh, DVD to see them, and it was the same with this. When it did come out, I'm like, oh, I really want to check this out. Didn't necessarily leave much of an impression with me, but uh, you know, it, 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 it's 15 years later, and uh, I, I'm happy to say, w- without jumping too much to the end of this, it is slightly better than I remembered. Uh, in some areas, it's not, but it's not unwatchable. I think that's the and, and like you said, it, it doesn't feel necessarily like two hours and 45 minutes. Yeah, which it's like I actually thought this was like a three and a bit hour movie, so I guess it's a little bit less, but. Yeah, we'll obviously talk about at the end the the TV treatment it's getting. One, can I just touch on before we get into it? Uh, I didn't actually realize that one of the screen play writers on this film is a Tasmanian who is very prominent Tasmanian who is an absolute knob. My dad went to high school with him and uh, oh. apparently was also a knob back in high school. So Richard Flanagan, who uh, I think most people know, I think he's like a environmental style writer he's done a lot of non-fiction work but he also he's probably his most famous book is a book called uh, the sound of one hand clapping um which got like a yeah exactly one hand <laughs> clapping Simpsons. uh he got like a tr- uh, like so he's the madonna of writers like he turned it into a film and he's like i'm directing this um but he's just He's always known for his very out there takes of like certain issues in Tasmanian politics and that, that a certain type of people always jump on board and he always gets this media like, oh, he's so important. He voices, he's the truth of the Tasmanian people. And half the time he's just an absolute fucking knob. So uh, I didn't realize that he <laughs> gets a screenplay credit in this. He helped write this fucking movie. So uh, shout out to the weird Tasmanian connection. And my, yeah, my dad said he went to school with him and he said he was an absolute asshole in school. So there this, you go. This, he's, he's the Trent queen of your dad's generation. Basically. <laughs> so um, shout out to Tasmania's own Richard Flanagan. But the cast <laughs> in this film stacked of Australians. Like I'm glad they sort yeah. of very much kept to the uh, the Australian side of it, because I think basically everyone in this film might be an Australian, except for like the the Russian dude maybe, and the the um, the Asian, the Chinese guy, the cook. Um, but outside of that, like pretty much everyone in this film, all Australian. Yeah, I mean, they went out and they got their major stars to sell this movie with, and then I feel like they didn't feel the need to get every like if if you were to do Canada the movie, right? Uh, the the <laughs> fear would be, <laughs> but the the fear would be. Oh, we're gonna cast, you know, I don't know the the, the biggest Rachel McAdams and Ryan Gosling, and then and we the gotta fill out like, too. <laughs> yeah, the Notebook too. But then you gotta pick like every Canadian. Jim Carrey's gonna be as opposed to just taking. Here's some good actors that are still working in Australia because I like looking at some of these names. You know, Jack Thompson, David Wenham, they've done Hollywood films. Brian but you Brown, look their filmography. Brian Brown, yeah, these are people who have done major movies in Hollywood. But when you go through a filmography they still balance it by working a lot in Australia still. Yeah. And I think that's, that's where, cause like a lot of the, these people have sort of gone on like Essie Davis, you know, was she'd done the matrix at those points. She'd done a few local ones, but this was years before she obviously did what Miss Fisher's murder mysteries. And then she obviously went on to be in game of Thrones. Um, and then like some of these other actors. And again, I'm going to completely mispronounce words and things like that. Like, David Gulpil, Gulpil, like had been around. I think he actually. We, we, he was in a movie we covered already. Yeah, he Did only. Re- what was he in that we covered? 
Was it, uh, hold on, I'm going to click, because I was looking through his filmography, I'm like, oh, that was one of the movies that we covered before. He only recently passed away, too. He was very, very recently passed away. Um, Crocodile Dundee. He was Neville Bell. I remember Neville Bell, oh, he, of wasn't course. He, wasn't he like the friend, like in the bar, wasn't he? Um, the, is that who he is in this movie? <laughs> the, and again, I'm not going to, I'm just going to call the actor's name David, because I'm not going to even remotely, the brother, the one who gets shot in the island, he oh, was yeah. pretty known. Um David Wenham, obviously, has done plenty of Hollywood yeah. stuff, as you said. Star Wars. Um, but, like, even, like, Ben Mendelsohn, uh, you yeah. know, Barry Otto, uh, some of these people that are in this film. There's a there's a really, like, brief... Um, are, you, are you familiar with the Australian movie Wolf Creek at all? I've heard of it. I haven't seen it, though. Yeah, it's that could be one. That'd be an interesting one. We could do a horror film here on the Oz Network. Um, sort of that was... Um, Quentin Tarantino was such a massive fan of Wolf Creek that the main guy in that, John Jarrett, sort of like the evil guy, he loved him so much that he cast him in one of his um, Inglorious Bastards or one of these ones afterwards. He, he's got a very small role in a Quentin Tarantino movie. He's the army guy in this film who's basically like at the end telling everybody to get in the truck. I'm like, oh, John Jarrett, um, which, you know, I forgot he was in it. He was best known for... Uh, co-hosting Better Homes and Gardens with his then-wife Noni Hazelhurst before uh, Joanna Griggs ever got the gig. So, um, plenty of plenty of people in this film from an Australian perspective who you're going to look at and go, oh, yep, I know that person, I know that person. But, I mean, c- can you picture this film with Russell Crowe in it? As much as we love Russell Crowe. I, I picture it differently. I, I don't picture it being... The, the second half of the movie, that I can totally see Russell Crowe doing. The opening bits, you know, the the bar fight and stuff like that, even though that's something Russell Crowe does in his regular everyday life, you know, we haven't <laughs> really seen Russell Crowe. <laughs> yeah. like, we haven't really seen Russell Crowe play that part as far as characters. So I feel like Hugh Jackman is the guy there that fit both sides of this this film. Whereas Russell Crowe definitely would have fit the second half I, and not so much the first half. I think it's perfectly cast. I mean, I, saying what I said about Heath Ledger is a bit young, but I mean, of course, he blew everyone away in The Dark Knight. That's, this was his year. I'm sure Heath Ledger could have pulled this off perfectly. But, like, mm-hmm. I think it's perfectly cast. I think Nicole Kidman is fantastic in this film. I think Hugh Jackman is fantastic. They handle, like, comedy and drama. They've got amazing chemistry. They're hot. Like, We're going to disagree on that. Really? Oh, I think they're <laughs> yeah. fantastic. Like, I just, oh, I, I love it. And David Wenham's such a good villain. <laughs> Brian Brown, do you? Oh, he's great. Was I've never actually seen Cocktail with Tom Cruise, but I always forget that Brian mm. Brown was in a Tom Cruise movie. Yeah, he was his mentor slash friend in that one. I just watched that recently. Uh, yeah, I'm Brian Brown's. Yeah, I, ten years earlier, Brian Brown could have played the the, yeah. the uh, Hugh Jackman role. <laughs> that would have been great. Yeah, I like Brian Brown. I think he's sort of at a point of his career now where he just randomly pops up in Australian like shows. Now Hugo Weaving's in some Australian drama at the moment right now that they're advertising quite heavily. So. Some of these actors, I guess, do their thing in Hollywood and they're like, nah, nah I'm acting Australian. And I just want to comment one thing. This movie, I'm sorry, like, I'm an Australian. I have an Australian accent. But even I don't put on an Australian accent. Like, I just, I swear Baz Luhrmann has just gone to each of these Australian actors and said, you know how Australia sounds like in The Simpsons? I want you to all sound like that. Like, why do they need to make us accentuate our accents even more? Like, David Wenham sounds like prime minister from, <laughs> from this. I just don't understand it. Is this purely to live into stereotypes of Australia? There are, there are words and sayings in this that are very Australian, but like literally Dave was like, what? Why? Uh, I'm going to tell you something right in advance. Um, sometimes when you do notes on your phone, autocorrect kicks in or it doesn't kick in. Maybe <laughs> that's a bigger problem. 
there's things in my notes where I'm like, was that some slang I wrote down or did I have autocorrect? So <laughs> I'm going to try to skip anything that I don't understand. There is one here. word which I will say, be careful in saying it because it is basically the Australian version of the N-word uh, so <laughs> that is said a few times in this film. So uh, It's not Grig- Grigger, is it? <laughs> it's the, the word beginning with B in which they're like, no B's allowed in here when he like tells him like to go into the, the pub. That's essentially, right. you don't use that word in Australia. That's the Australian N-word. I, I will cautiously go through my notes here. Um, this is a long movie. I'm sure, like last week, I'm going to skip through some stuff here, but I'm going to try to get through this as best I can. Uh, so, obviously, the opening scroll talks about the stolen generation and everything. I mean, this is something that uh, it's become... It, it was kind of known even back when I was a kid, like throughout the 80s and 90s, but even more so in the last couple of years here in Canada because what happened here was... Uh, it was a little bit different. There wasn't necessarily that, that thing of where you want to... Um, what do you say, breed out the black breed or in this case? Black, the, yeah. yeah, yeah. it wasn't breed out the native in them, but uh, it was very similar where it's like, oh, these people can't provide what they need, so we're going to take these kids and put them in school. They were called residential schools here. Yeah, and that. recently within the last like five, 10 years, they've been uncovering like all these mass graves where these schools, basically the kids died and they just buried them and never reported to the parents, which is, it's awful. Because uh, your um, prime minister, yeah. I believe, apologized at a very similar. Like at the end of this movie, it says mm. like in two thousand and eight. Um, that's a whole other thing. Very controversial topic when that happened. But I'm pretty sure your prime minister did a similar thing in the same year. Because there was in Melbourne, I remember being there one time on like the side of buildings. They had a giant mural of like the speech that our prime minister gave, and then next door to it, they had a speech that the prime minister of Canada gave, basically saying like this has been a big year for you know stuff in the past so i don't know if it was 2008 that your prime minister did it as well i mean it's happened multiple times <laughs> basically oh, wow. every time they uncover one of these new graves they're like oh time to issue another apology i did it <laughs> so- once and for years like we, we had a prime minister who basically he just he refused to and everybody would always go up to him and go when are you going to say sorry when are you going to say sorry it was so much so that at the closing ceremony of the sydney olympics midnight oil wore t-shirts that said the word sorry on it and that's all that everybody talked about after the olympics sorry uh, so when Kevin Rudd finally got in, like that was one of the first things he ever did. And since then, now that's it. We said sorry. Move on. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure uh, Canadian Prime Minister is going to apologize before this episode's over, just for us. Well, I was going to say, why it. is that even a thing? The Canadian Prime Minister said sorry. Um, he's Canadian. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's the, that's usually the opening line of any speech the Prime Minister delivers. That's, I'm sorry. That's <laughs> just like up front. If they ever did a movie called Canada, it wouldn't be called Canada. It would be called Sorry, <laughs> the Canadian movie. <laughs> Yeah, we're not going for the obvious. We're going for the more obvious title next. So it starts us off Um, with people clubbing seals. Sorry. Sorry, seal. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Uh, Now, my first complaint about this movie is the Baz Luhrmann style getting in the way. So we get this opening scroll about post Pearl Harbor and everything and the stolen generation. And then you have the kid narrating where he's like, oh, September. I think they even say September 39 or something like that. Uh, and he's saying, oh, I'm not a black fellow. I'm not a white fellow. So basically he's mixed race here, which I mean, here in Canada, that that's there's actually a name for it. It's called Métis. And you basically if you're Métis, which is essentially the French explorers who colonized here breeding with natives, you know, if you have within a certain amount of generations Métis blood, you get all these perks that you don't necessarily get. So we basically said, we're sorry, here's some perks for you. Yeah. That's what the Canadians got. Indigenous, um, no, trust me, if you're, you're Aboriginal in this country, you get plenty of perks too. And you don't even need to prove it in Australia. You just tick a box, oh, yeah, I'm Aboriginal. Here, here's some yeah. free stuff. <laughs> oh, I think you got to go through blood tests and genealogy mm, trees and stuff like that here. Uh, so the kid basically sees a car coming and he says, oh, it's the coppers. It's the coppers. <laughs> Give me your badge. 
Uh, but uh, then Nicole Kidman basically walks out of the strangest woman I've ever seen. Uh, and then the I like the way the title comes up. Uh, the white fellas call it Australia. <laughs> Boom. And Tasmania is on that map. I they, like <laughs> they must have either corrected it or like maybe it was just in the promotional materials. Because I think I mentioned there was so much controversy in Tasmania about they removed Tasmania a lot from maps in this promotion. Now here's the complaint I have. Basically, but we can't start here. We got to go back to the beginning. So then we show Nicole Kidman at home. Oh, your husband wants you to go to Australia. Okay. It's 30 seconds and then she's right back on the plane to Australia. No, first we got to go back to the beginning. Uh, England. No, back to Australia. What is the point of that? Like, I feel like everything in this opening sequence here is like Baz Luhrmann, like, I'm going to do a clever thing where we start at one point in the movie and then we flash back. But then the stuff you get flashing back is completely meaningless because you get Nicole Kidman's introduction saying, oh, I'm going to go there to manage this, this cattle ranch or whatever. And then you get the introduction to Hugh Jackman where he's in the bar fight and stuff like that. And all this happens over the course of like two minutes. And then you're right back where the movie starts. <laughs> it's completely pointless. Um, it, it just kind of feels like, oh, we're going to do some trick editing here. Uh, I, I Even the, the fight that Hugh Jackman has, like to me, that's just flat. Like this, it's set up like this should be some triumphant introduction. You know, there's all these like classic movie character intros you know like the the way the camera holds on and what they're doing oh this is gonna be amazing and it's basically just a drinking a bar and then they cut away and then they cut back for him punching out the guy but when he, when he punches out the guy it like cuts right right away like this is where i'm more curious to see this you know massive tv miniseries edit that they're gonna have because to me it feels like he really wanted something special for the this character's introduction even nicole kidman's like we got to go back to the beginning and it's like blink and you miss it and you're right back where you started and it's the same thing with hugh jackman here like what's the point of it he gets in a bit of a bar fight and that's pretty much it um there's a lot of talk about beef so i guess <laughs> this is what they they do on the farm they farm beef cattle um i do like though the way that uh this is that that fun energy that baz Luhrmann has where I wish he just done two separate movies about Australia, you know, uh, just one that was fun and one that was a little more serious. Cause the way that like the fight's going on in the background, every time Nicole Kidman looks, there's nothing happening. And then she turns her head and you see guys like choking and throttling each other. Like that was clever. Uh, and you know, I don't know, this is part of that problem with like the chemistry of the characters is that the way that this movie is set up is she's married, right? She's coming here for her husband. And again, the husband's killed right away. Mm. <laughs> like, do we, we, we should at least get introduced to this character before he's killed because you, you don't feel like you need to mourn this character. Well, she so everything that she's, well, then that's part of the problem, right? <laughs> because I think that this character should have something where she's either mourning or you just don't have a husband, you know, like it just, it, it's, a lot of stuff. You just feels like it doesn't need to be here. Just really quick. Cause I, I plan to say what you're saying, but like, I, I think, yeah, it is that bit's odd because it's sort of always an implied cause she keeps saying like, Oh, he's clearly cheating on me. And like, Oh, clearly we know why he's here. But then it's basically yeah. then implied by Hugh Jackman. Like, no, he's a pretty good guy actually. Like, so like yeah. at the end of the day, you're selling this guy out to be like a, Oh, he's a dick. So she's coming out there to whatever. But then it's kind of like, well, clearly he was a good guy and he was just murdered because he wanted the property. So then you're mm-hmm. like, oh, well, Hugh Jackman's dousing himself in water. So I've just, got a horny reaction. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's that's definitely one bit where you're kind of like, okay, like, well, that's a bit, you know. And, like, I think my biggest complaint about this is that nothing in this story demands that she needed to be married. Mm. You could have done this and it was her brother or her father, you true, know. True. And then I feel like the, the death has a little bit more emotional weight to it. 
And you don't question why she's moving on so quickly and Have everything. Jack Thompson, just, like, be her dad. Like, it, create that character. And then that way yeah. you've got more emotional weight to his death. Like, yeah, that's a, that's yeah, a very yeah, good point. Yeah, really good point. Because you don't, yeah, there's no reason for her being, like, the reason for her being married is because she's a woman in 1930, whatever. She probably can't own land or whatever it is. But, like, it's more of a get her to Australia for a reason. But, yeah, make it a dad. Make it a brother. Easy. Yeah, then she just inherits it. It makes a lot more sense that way. Um, I do like, though, the ride to the ranch here where Hugh Jackman's driving and she's just so appalled with everything and people are passing around her underwear and stuff like that. Uh, everybody cramped in there. I do like where she just loses over a kangaroo. That that That's probably the, the, the best joke in this movie, like the funniest part. It's like, oh, it's a kangaroo. I never thought I'd see what I'm close to. Just Hugh Jackman, like, rolling his eyes like, yeah. Like, this is basically your reaction in every Australian reaction to kangaroos. Yep. You know, we have tons of stuff like that here. Deer. Would see I've deer, told the deer, deer story. Yeah. yeah, I got excited <laughs> the first time when I, like, went to Mallory's parents' house. I'm like, oh, my God, there's a deer in the backyard. Deer, I'm going to go touch it. And everyone's like, bed, just don't go near it. It's a deer. And I'm like, but yeah, it's like, a deer. Like... We we live in the city. I mean, Winnipeg is one of the the most populated cities in Canada, city. and yet there, but there are like multiple areas of this city where deer are common. You'll just see a deer in your mm. backyard, and then you're shooing it out there. Get out of here, deer! Yeah, my yeah. area, it's like wild turkeys <laughs> and foxes, but like other areas, I don't know, ten minute drive away, it's just deer everywhere. Oh. But yeah, this is his reaction is like I wouldn't have got that in two thousand eight. But now him like, yeah, a kangaroo. <laughs> Look, I get that, that. That's a joke for the Australians. Yeah, because, I mean, it's it's a thing in most of our suburbs. Like I, where my dad lives, I drive to the top of that street. Kangaroos are everywhere. Like, uh, you know, it's just you just see it. I mean, if you don't, if you drive a certain distance in Australia and you don't see a dead kangaroo on the side of the road, you're doing it wrong. Um, Like, yeah, it's uh, but I mean, I can also see the the awe in it and the fact that they're also a very unique animal and it's very uniquely Australian, like. You know, yeah. and as you said, like when I lived in Canada, like I got used to the deer because, yeah, you'd be driving him like, oh, fuck off, get off the road, you dickhead. Because, yeah. <laughs> like, the difference between a deer and a kangaroo is a deer doesn't move and a deer just walks slowly across mm. the road, whereas a kangaroo, it bounces off your car. They're light. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering about that. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're light. And then you just eat them for dinner. So, you know. Uh, uh, but like the best part of this isn't even just his reaction. Oh boy. It's the fact that it's just all of a sudden bang and it's shot out of nowhere. And Nicole Kim's reaction is like, it's so over the top. It's like, ah! and, then, and then Baz Luhrmann just cuts away right away. I'm like, Oh, that's very well done there. This is a Baz Luhrmann movie. Um, so they get to the ranch. Hugh Jackman has doing a shampoo commercial. Oh, <laughs> Jamie's liking that. Good... You know, I, I really thought that she would watch this movie with me. Uh, and I told her, I'm like, okay, it's a big epic. You know, it's the same guy that made Elvis and Romeo and Juliet and Moulin Rouge and, you know, Nicole Kidman and Hugh Jackman and Hugh Jackman shirtless for a lot of the movie. We watched this movie. I'm not joking. It was 10 minutes into this movie. So we're not even at this point yet. And she's like, you just need to take notes for this, right? I'm like, yeah, she's like, oh, I'm going to go upstairs and shower. But now that I'm saying that out loud, I'm like, if, if it had been after the shower scene or Hugh Jackman shower scene, okay, I'm understanding that. Yeah, I, I'm so <laughs> bored of this movie. Quick shower, shower. Whoa. Kids are asleep. Woo, woo. <laughs> Let me just go on to my profile really quick and finish this. <laughs> but like, she really didn't have an interest in watching this movie, which I thought she would. Cause it's right. Proud. Like she loves gone with the wind, you know? Uh, so, and she loves Hugh Jackman and she loves David Wenham. And uh, I'm sure she loves Jack Thompson too. And Brian uh, Brown. And Brian Brown. I mean, she didn't watch cocktail with me. You know, this is totally off topic here. I'm keeping this episode rolling here, but uh, last weekend, uh, as I get into about once every one or two months, I'm like, Let's watch some Tom Cruise movies. So last weekend we watched uh, multiple Tom Cruise movies. I think we got through three in three days. We watched Jerry Maguire. We watched Minority Report. And then we watched um, The Mummy. 
which she insisted she didn't like that movie. She rewatched it now. She's like, ah, maybe I was too hard on this movie. It's not that bad. But uh, a cocktail is one I'd like to show her. But uh, this this weekend we're in right now as we're recording this, she's like, oh, do you want to watch anything tonight when you're done recording? I'm like, oh, is there another Tom Cruise movie you want to watch? <laughs> and she's like, I think I'm all Tom Cruise out right now. I'm like, hey, divorce. you don't even joke about that. <laughs> <laughs> Get a divorce, <laughs> quick. <laughs> There's Leave. certain things that are sacred in marriage, okay? <laughs> <laughs> Tom Cruise weekends are one of them. <laughs> yeah, don't mess with my cruise. <laughs> Um, anyways, so yeah, Jamie excused herself at this point in the movie. And then so did um, Colin after watching Tom Cruise, because we know he's gay. Moved on to Tom Cruise, yeah. Uh, this is where we get introduced to Jack Thompson, which is funny, because I didn't realize this is Jack Thompson until after he'd been killed off in the movie, and I was looking on Wikipedia. Uh, he does, like, this is completely different than anything. He, there was that one movie he did with Russell Crowe that I saw, and then, of course, Star Wars. Um, but, I mean, he is so much fun in this movie. Like, I would say... More than any other actor's movie, he's having a blast. Mm. Uh, but even the way he's trying to, he's slurring his words, saying, trying to say, what is his name? Like Kipling Flynn or something like that. And he's like, Kip- Kipling <laughs> Flim. <laughs> he can't even pronounce his own name. I'm like, this guy's great. Uh, we we get um, Nicole Kidman basically accusing Hugh Jackman of one, get it on with her. Uh, when they get into the house, this is where they find the dead body on the table. And this is where. You don't need the husband. He doesn't do anything in the movie. He's dead right away. She doesn't seem to care that much. Move on. Uh, the kid, you basically get a little bit more introduction to him after the intro. Uh, you see that his mother's there and everything. And uh, he talks about uh, his mom and Fletcher laying down and tickling, mm. which is code for fighting. Yes, that's <laughs> Colin likes that. Idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and he's constantly hiding from Fletcher. So his name his name is Nulla, by the way, but we'll just call him Kid uh, if we forget. He's um, uh, Clayton Watson from The Matrix. Uh. <laughs> the kid, yeah. Uh, Nicole Kidman's basically you know, questioning him, and Fletcher, David Wenham, is trying to put him on the spot and you know, tell him everything's okay and everything, and uh, threatening to beat the mother. Um, I don't know what the deal was with the windmill here. He was basically trying to get Nicole Kidman out of here and saying, oh, the windmill doesn't even work. And then the kid, look, windmill works. And she's like, you lie. It's a, like the a, windmill works, therefore he must be your child. I think it's something to do with water. Like I think windmills are help like the water pump. So therefore like by saying it's not working, they're trying to claim that this land is like barren and whatever. So like, oh, you oh, should sell it. So I think that's his, he's like blocked it off to make it seem like this is terrible. So she's going to have to sell it. Oh, okay. yeah, this is all the, the plan of him and Brian Brown. Yeah. Um. So he gets fired on the spot. Uh. And the, the kid basically says, from this day on, we're going to call her Mrs. Boss. Um. I don't know. At some point, somebody's blaming Jack Thompson for this. There's the ledger where they're basically showing you're going to be foreclosed. But apparently there's $22 million that are missing or 22,000 or 22 something. $22 have been missing. And that's what they're going for. <laughs> A lot of money in Australia in 1939. <laughs> And from what I can gather, again, this is a very simple movie, but like they don't spend a lot of time really talking about the the villain's plot here. They have been stealing cattle that's not branded to sell mm. on their own to kind of downplay how much profitability this farm has. It's Brian Brown's plan, and David Wenham is just you know the guy carrying it out. He's married um, to Brian. So yeah, I don't think they really explained it to us. So Essie Davis is Brian Brown's daughter, and he's married to Brian Brown's yeah, so he's yeah, daughter, the son-in-law. Yeah. Um, and, and I have a lot of issues though, as much as I think David Wenham is great in this as a cheesy mustache twirling villain, I have a lot of issues with like, why, what does he actually do wrong? Cause he's carrying out somebody else's plan and then he takes well, the fall for it. I like, this is actually one of these ones where I was going to say to you, this might be a movie where I can't really defend the villain because they are like a bit like over the top. Like at the end of the day, this like, like 
want to dominate the cattle industry and own everything in the Northern Territory. So they're basically well, like, well, I'm going to do whatever it takes to own this. Like, I don't think there's anything really redeeming about these villains. Well, no, I, I'm, I'm not saying that what they're doing doesn't make them a villain. For me, it's the complication of Brian Brown and David Wenham. Because to me, David Wenham is established throughout this first half of the movie as being, you're the guy who carries out my dastardly plan, Brian Brown's dastardly plan. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, Brian Brown seems to be washing his hands clean of it and like, how could you, son-in-law? Well, I think and it's, then it's I, suddenly his fault. I think it's more that he gets frustrated in the fact that like he is essentially like he's not doing, because he, he says that line, like never send a boy to do a man's job. I think he's basically like, look, well, you're getting overrun here by a woman essentially. And then I think it's the ball scene where Brian Brown's all but like, Signed, got you know, had to dance with Nicole Kidman and like, well, it's all mine now. So like, I think that's yeah. when he's kind of like, well, clearly you're shit. And then the the thing that I think gets confusing is when they do sort of the montage. It's sort of it, you lose where I think there's more. Surely in the TV series, there's going to be more explained because then all of a sudden, Dave Wenham's feeding him to a crocodile and he's taking it over and becoming more evil. It's yeah. like, okay, well, what happened from that point to that point to make him like yeah. fully. You know, because like he needs to say like you're fired, like you know you're completely out of this or something like that. Maybe that, that it's, was... it's a newspaper clipping that breezes by the screen. Yeah. So if you're rubbing your eyes, you don't even know what happens. Yeah. So I yeah there's, I, there's I, issues with montages in this movie. Yeah. No, I I get that. Um, but but I'll give some of my defenses for David Wenham later on. Uh, you know, like he he had a right to father that child and then and that's not where i'm going with this that's what? a joke but uh somebody's going to somebody so colin's saying if you've got a wife and you've got a kid go off and sleep with someone else and have more kids was, with other people listen he was just trying to ble- breed the black out of him okay <laughs> i'm not going there <laughs> i'm not going there he was doing his duty to australia in the 30s <laughs> If we were more popular, that would totally be a clickbait article by tomorrow morning. Colin Hilding uh, defends no, my, the stolen generation. I want to, I, I want to, I want to establish my issue with the hierarchy of the villains here before I get to my defense of David Wenham later on. Um, so now that Fletcher's gone, they're basically saying, okay, so who's going to drive the cattle? Like, how are we going to get it there? How are we going to make the money? Um, and Hugh Jackman saying he can't do it without like eight people or seven people. I, I think he's the eight, so he needs seven people. Nicole Kidman basically offers, I can ride a horse, I'll do it. Uh, and this is where we get the first montage. I'll kind of break here at the first montage when they kind of agree, these are all the people who will help us do it. They got my friend, we got Jack Thompson, we're going to give you, we're going to bring, bring the can along. But it's just the, the one moment in this montage, and this movie has way too many montages. This is like a 90s sports film, gone wrong. <laughs> but Nicole Kidman trying to move the, the cattle Move along. Roar, roar. Roar, roar, roar. Move along. That's fantastic. I, I also love like when he's here and he's like, all right, we've got six. And then uh, the the little boy's like, I'll do it. All right, six and a quarter. Uh, <laughs> um, one thing I like, I agree and disagree with a lot of this stuff at the beginning because I think that the one main issue I think I have with this film is the stuff that feels a bit rushed and like this opening, like I think you, you you're giving it a bit disservice. This whole like flashback. It actually is a half hour sequence of the film that we get until we get to the moment where we meet David Wenham and we sort of have this bit that we have in the flashback. But I can also see why you say it's a point. It's a blink and you miss flashback because everything in this opening half hour is very rushed. It's oh I'm mm-hmm. going to Australia and oh look there's a bar fight and welcome to Australia ah and then it's, it's all the, like, it's. 
just to cut in specifically the introductions to those two lead characters yeah is the part that they they botch it's like and again you're gonna laugh well it's not anything you laugh i think you see where i'm going with this it is a bit titanic-ish where it's sort of like you've got 20 minutes of them on a boat like come on grandma let's go to a boat and it's like, okay what's the point a lot of people are like well what's the point of the first 20 minutes of titanic you know, and I will defend that. Or, or two hours and 45 minutes. I will defend that's that. Me. I think that, that's <laughs> that's more established and it works more. I think it adds to the storyline more. Whereas this, it is very rushed. And I think, like, one thing that I'll say, like, I, I enjoy the comedy of this movie. I think it's funny and I think it's kind of over-the-top silliness that, like, I like sometimes. But, like, the tone of this movie in the first half an hour, if you didn't know everything else that happened, you're like, well, is this just a comedy? Like, cause it's mm. kind of like the whole first half of this movie is a very silly-ish. And I think kind of like you've got like the bar fight. You can handle the bar fight a little bit better, I agree. Um, I think that, you know, the, the, bit, the, the bit when he's like dousing the water over himself and she comes out of the tent, like that was all in the trailers and like things like that. So many of that sort of stuff. Of course it was. Even, even the kangaroo bit. Like I get the kangaroo bit's a bit funny, but like it just... There's some of the, the some of you said this I think like why you never want to watch Dudley Do Right right like it's just silly stereotypes of Australia and I think when we did Crocodile Dundee yeah you had some of it there but I also think that like they handled it in a way where it wasn't over the top there's some stuff in this film where it's just like oh look kangaroos and like I swear like every like five minutes if you look in the background there's a kangaroo hopping somewhere down the street and like they just they go to a point and there's some of the wording they use in this movie like. Hugh Jackman says, crikey, way too many. Like, Baz Luhrmann watched <laughs> Steve Irwin way too many times before this. There's a bit where they reference, um, they're talking about characters like, oh, the Drongo brothers. Now, Drongo. Oh, I, want, I tried to look up what Drongo was. Drongo is like a term for an idiot. Like, I'd be like, Colin, you're a real Drongo. Like, Drongo is literally like a, a, a Aussie slang for an idiot. And I'm like, really? You're going to call them the Drongo brothers? <laughs> like, idiot brothers? Okay. Um, uh, you know, and again, the accent really does irk me sometimes in this movie because again, you got you've got real Australian actors that you basically said do a fake Australian accent. Um, there are definitely parts of Australia where they sound very Steve Irwin, you know, Paul Hogan, very stereotypical Australian, and the north of Australia is a part where you probably do sound a lot more like this. But it's just it's a bit silly sometimes. But outside of that, like I kind of like this. You know, it's sweeping, it's silly, it's epic, it's sort of... I just love Hugh Jackman's introduction. Like I think I've told before, we used to on our breakfast radio show all the time, play that clip, welcome to Australia, welcome to Australia. Like, it's so cheesy. Like, it really is. It's over the top, but it's one of those real over the top silly things that I can, like, enjoy. Like, it's just there. And I love the drive. I love Jack Thompson, you know, going to Faraway Downs. What a name, Faraway Downs. Yeah. Like, fucking hell. It is a great name. Uh, like, great. I think it's just over the top. I think it's a Simpsons name. <laughs> like, <laughs> I would have called it a Chazwaza. I would have called it <laughs> Faraway Downs. Um, you know, like, it's just, it's, but this is where, like, I can enjoy it. And I think it breezes by. Like, yeah, I can see what you're saying. Like, it is kind of, in a way, of a pointless introduction. But this is where, like, I'm, going to be so intrigued what they're going to do with this TV series. And it's so random that I read that last night because I hadn't heard about that until I read it last night because it's like, was anyone calling for this? Like, I mean, yeah. release the Lerman cut? Where was the billboards <laughs> that this didn't happen? Because it it is a bit strange that 15 years later, a film that generally is received as a bit of a failure and most people have forgotten about, 
uh, that all of a sudden they're like, oh, let's make a TV series. And I initially thought they were like redoing it. Like, oh, let's recast. Let's do it. Like what they're doing with Harry Potter. Like, why are they doing that? Mm. Um, but no, they're literally just like Baz Luhrmann's like, I've got all this extra footage that I never released. So we're just going to release this into a six part TV series, which is odd, but okay. So I'm well, kind of intrigued I mean, to see what they do with that because I feel there's a lot in this half first half an hour alone that they can explore a little bit more. Yeah, like there's a lot. Uh, when you see this many montages, you know that they are trying to meet a running time of a movie, you know, because there's montages where there don't need to be montages in this movie. And this is a movie that I read that before I watched the movie. And as I was watching, I got that feeling that people described when they saw the Joss Whedon Justice League, where like you could just tell there's something like missing there, that something's disconnected. And knowing that made me view this movie differently. And I'm I'm picking apart all these little things. I'm like, you really can tell that he wished he could have done more with this and this and this. And I'm sure we'll talk about it at the end because I remember the big controversial bit about this film in the lead up was, ever, you know, in the media, it was all kind of like, oh, the, the test audiences are hating this film. Like Baz Luhrmann's in trouble. Like we're not, you know, because the, the, the ending that apparently went to test screening is Hugh Jackman's character dies. I think in that last scene, he gets shot and he dies. So I think that was like the big controversy. And then he went back and refixed it. Because I think if you read about it, there's like six different endings at three of them he actually filmed. And so I'll be intrigued to see in the TV series, like if that's different, because yeah, that was, that was big news in Australia in the lead up to this film. And then they basically said like, spoiler alert, don't watch this. Like Hugh Jackman's character dies and people aren't happy about it. So, which in a weird way, like kind of thinking about this, I kind of almost think that might make this movie better. <laughs> like yeah, you have maybe. Hugh Jackman dying at the end, but um, I, yeah, I see, I definitely see your complaints with what you're saying. I don't flat out disagree with you, but I also disagree in the fact that it's still enjoyable. Like I, like I think David Wenham's character, goes from zero to a hundred in the fact that you know he's evil straight away. Like when I was watching this, I'm going like, isn't he like the dad of the little boy? And that gets revealed like a plot twist at the end. And they basically reveal this within two seconds. I'm like, oh, okay. Yeah. I always thought that was like a big reveal at the end. Like oh, plot twist. Here's the father. And like, cause like you basically get this point where he starts slapping the little kid and Nicole comes like, no, get off my property. You even man. Um, like straight away. It's like, okay, well he's evil. Like I always thought this was more of a build up, you know? It would have been more effective as more of a buildup too, because if this kid basically gets used as leverage later in the movie, like, oh, you could do what I want, otherwise this. Imagine if you'd revealed it just before you get to that final scene and then what he's going to do with the final scene seems a little bit more sinister. This, this is where you think about his character, like, you know, making more of a Cal Hockley from Titanic where it's sort of, you know, we're meant to think straight away, oh, Cal, he's evil. But like, you know, as we talked about in that movie, he's not really, he's got a right. And then he sort of, he goes more and more insane as he's losing more. This, I think yeah. what loses its way in this film is that, the, the, the scene at the end where David Wenham just basically like, he took my wife, he took everything. And then he has like one film, bloop, dead. Like there's no like stakes there really. Like yeah. I feel like we know he's a prick already. Like I feel like he needs to have that scene where it's like, I've lost my kid. He'd reveal like, because there's got to be a scene where S.E. Davis finds out he's the dad of the kid. There's no payoff yeah. to that. He gets away with it. So yeah. there needs to be more of a, oh, reveal, father, terrible. Well, I don't know, like rambling. But anyway, the first half and... and can you at least agree, like, I know there's a lot of special effects in this film that, you know, are a bit cheesy and over the top, but, like, you can't fault the spectacular nature shots of how good yeah. Australia looks in this film. Well, and I think that's where watching this now, those special effects shots don't hold up because you really see the difference now, you know? <laughs> watching this in high definition, you can tell this is a great location. You can tell this is not. This is a you know, green screen or and it was some digital artist. Filmed a lot of it uh, in, the, like, the far regions of 
the north of Western Australia, Northern Territory, and I think some parts of Queensland as well. So um, very remote, very uh, arid sort of. It's Again, it's, with Canada, the reason why you all live on the border, right? Because there's all snow up north. With us, mm-hmm. it's like we all live on the coast because for the most part, this is what the middle of Australia is like. It's just empty and desert. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't look like a place people want to go to, you know? No. And But yet at the same time, it looks incredible. It's incredible. Look, this is why Western movies are so popular, you know? You got to wonder when you watch these Western movies, like, why is this the land everybody's fighting over? And it's nothing. Mm -hmm. Right. But then you see like these canyons and everything and like, but it looks incredible, you know? Yeah. Um, So I'm sure this movie, maybe the tourism would have done better if uh, if they showed a little bit more life uh, to some of the landscapes. Who knows? Yeah, uh, more shots here, Jackman. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Come to Australia. <laughs> we got one of these on every street corner. <laughs> <laughs> Which, again, no disrespect to Russell Crowe, but like Russell Crowe was never really, I guess, considered. I mean, in Gladiator, definitely. Yeah, but like, I mean, you know, Hugh Jackman's always like he was the sexiest man in the world and all this kind of stuff. He's always been seen like I just, and again, no disrespect to Russell Crowe. I like Russell Crowe. He's apparently getting rave reviews in that Pope Exorcist Pope's or whatever Exorcist. it's called, or whatever it is. But like. I just don't picture Russell Crowe as really like a sex symbol, if you know what I mean. Well, I mean, around the time, like early 2000s, maybe a few years prior to this, he definitely had that period where it's like women were insane for Russell Crowe, like around the gladiator time period. Um, but it, to me, it's it's always interesting because he's definitely aged a lot. When you see later, we were watching the Tom Gracefully. Cruise Mummy movie. and great. Well, I'm not, I'm not knocking him. In fact, I'm actually saying the opposite. We're watching the Tom Cruise Mummy movie and I'm looking and I'm saying like, that's an old man, you know, because in, in that movie, Russell Crowe is basically referring to Tom Cruise as a much younger man. Like, he's like, oh, I'm much older than you are. And I looked it up and I'm like, Tom Cruise is two years older than Russell Crowe. <laughs> <Really? laughs> wow. and, and, I didn't even know that. Shit. <laughs> but meanwhile, we're watching this and I'm pointing, the, I'm pointing that out and Jamie's looking at Russell Crowe. She's like, he's still hot. Wow. Like, really? Russell Crowe? Okay. That blows my mind. <laughs> Tom Cruise is the, the, the older man in this younger man dimension. So how, how much older is Russell Crowe than Hugh Jackman? So Hugh Jackman's 54 at the moment. Russell Crowe's only five years older than Hugh Jackman. Yeah, so, so I mean, there, there's a... I would say Hugh Jackman also aging gracefully. I think he looks pretty oh, much his age. 100%. And Heath Ledger, he was born 79, so he's uh, 11 years like younger. 29 of 11 years younger yeah. than Hugh Jackman. I mean, Nicole Kibben's like, she's decent age, but 50-ish. She's, I mean, maybe probably had a bit more work done than some of these people we're talking <laughs> about, but I still think Nicole Kibben looks amazing. Uh, so, so I will say... Who was Mel Gibson the- in this conversation? Was he, was he blacklisted back then? 2008? Don't say that phrase. There's a, there's a word in there that we're not allowed to associate with Mel Gibson anymore. Oh, well. No, black, you're not allowed to associate with Mel Gibson But anymore. I mean, Mel Gibson, like, I mean, I know technically not Australian, but we always claim he's our own. But I mean, he was always a heartthrob. If you made this oh, in the early 90s, this would have been Mel Gibson, no doubt. It would have had to have been Mel Gibson. And that's kind of like, but off. that's, that's what I appreciate. You're coming off of Lord of the Rings. Mm. Carl Urban, is he New Zealand or, or oh, Australian? I, don't think, I think he's New Zealand. He's somebody that I don't think gets in the conversation uh, of Australian but, but actors. I, Carl, Carl Urban somebody that I could see in this role maybe he's more than like a Heath Ledger. Yeah, more more than Heath Ledger and more than Russell Crowe. I could see Carl Urban in this. But anyways, I, I one sequence I love in this Chris movie. Chris Hemsworth is, would where, be in this film if it was made today. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> I don't think that works at all. Oh. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I agree with that. Uh, but like, I think that if you did make this movie today, it would be like but Keith you know, Urban and Margot. Uh, Keith Urban. Uh, it would be Chris Hems- <laughs> Chris Hemsworth and Margot Robbie. Like, if you like, if they if that TV show oh. they were doing right now was remade, you you know it'd be Chris Hemsworth and Margot Robbie. Keith Urban would be playing the David Wenham role. <laughs> Keith Urban, he can act, can't he? 
Danny, I don't know. And good for them for still being together. Like, I mean, tell you what, Nicole Kidman's done all right from Tom Cruise to Keith Urban. That's, I mean, she, he's no Keith, he's no Tom Cruise, but Keith Urban's all right. She, she just she just found the only man who had had more work done than her. Yeah. <laughs> have you ever seen Have you ever seen Keith Urban before all his surgeries? I have not. I've seen him live. He was performed at a grand final. I was at once, but uh, no, I haven't. I don't really pay much attention to Keith Urban's face. I remember seeing a video of like, a, I think it was like his first television appearance when he was like 16 or 17 years old or like late teens. And you look at him like, that is not the same person. <laughs> there is no part of this man's face that is left that's original. I'm a, I'm a Google kid and the fun fact is about Keith Urban, actually born in New Zealand. <laughs> um, uh, see, all the best ones are from New Zealand, aren't they? How do you feel about that? Uh, Russell Crowe, Kiwi as well. I can see that, uh, yeah, he definitely is uh, a man with work done on his face. So yeah. Yep. Uh, all right. So back this this sequence here with the mother dying. This is great. This is one of the best parts of the movie. This is a death that has that emotional weight. And I think the best thing about it is that you 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 kind of find out she's dead off screen. They're hiding in there, and at first it looks great. They have them inside this water tower and the the ladder breaking, and and it's sometimes not knowing. Like you assume all these characters to swim, and, and then when you see like they're struggling and everything, well, they can't swim now. What are they going to hold on to, and how long are they going to have to be in there? And then when the mother comes out, at first I'm thinking, oh, that was a close call, but then almost off screen, it's like, oh, she's dead, like that. That and normally that would bother me, but in this case, I actually really like that the character's death is off screen. You know, because yeah. I feel like it, it suits the boy more that you don't see the boy getting too emotional or depressed about this. Um, really, it just it <laughs> comes down to. You're a woman. He's a sad child. Go do your job, woman. Yeah. <laughs> well, and he, here, he, doesn't he say that? Doesn't he say like, you're a woman? You go down there. <laughs> yeah, he, he actually uses you're a woman or something like that. Uh, it's a woman's job. <laughs> um, now, this is where I'm going to say that the biggest inaccuracy of this movie is. So this movie starts um, September of 1939. But then they flash back prior to that. So when the kid's narrating, that whole opening sequence is September 1939. Prior to that, it's got to be a couple weeks earlier. And th in this sequence here, she basically sings to him Somewhere Over the Rainbow from Wizard of Oz, a movie that wouldn't have come out until a few weeks after this movie starts. So she like saw a sneak preview and memorized the soundtrack. Did she own it like on her iPod or something? It's just to me, as, as somebody who likes you know movie history and something like that, I'm like, she would not have seen this movie or been able to, they definitely would have released it overseas where she was at this point. When well, it was she would have seen the it US in, in London. Time. She might've seen it in the UK. But but that wouldn't have been released after, that would have been released long after the United States. This is like the 30s. They didn't have international instant distribution. Yeah. I think Baz Luhrmann's just gone 1939, Wizard of Oz. All right. Love. Exactly. Yeah. But like, I will say it suits the movie and I like the way yeah. they incorporate the Somewhere with the Rainbow into the score and everything. But me, like uh, as a movie buff and movie history, I'm like, no, 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 not possible. Well, it's not possible. <laughs> uh, I mean, I'll, I'll jump into, I mentioned you briefly off air, like I didn't think that really happened. Um, the, the one bit that yeah, frustrated me and I'm not really like a history buff that sort of stuff but the scene at the end on mission island when you got the japanese troops like on the island i'm thinking like i don't think japan ever sent ground troops into australia like i'm pretty <laughs> sure this is wrong and then i just read it before we came on air it's like yeah this is fictional japanese you know only ever bombed it they never sent ground troops onto any australian land so that bit was added for dramatic effect but so same with well, somewhere over the rainbow and wizard of oz uh, <laughs> being released uh, around this time I also think one of the areas where this movie improves from where he is seeing this post Elvis, because I'm not going to say that Baz Luhrmann does a great job with this the way he does Elvis, but seeing the way he handled hi history in quotes in Elvis 
where it's almost done tongue in cheek. Like, mm. oh, this is the way it really happened. You know, from one of those case files that doesn't exist, like the <laughs> men in black thing. Uh, it, I view this a little bit differently. Whereas maybe in 2008, I would have been judging it more harshly, not even knowing the history, but being like, this is very cartoony for a movie that's supposed well, to be about it's, history. It's, you know? Yeah, like, but I mean, maybe I get it. Like, and we can easily pick these things apart, but like, Sorry to keep bringing up Titanic, but it's like Titanic was based on a real-life event with mainly fictionalized characters with a few yeah. real-life people. Like, we know that the the guy who, like, shot himself in the head, the the crew was based on a real person, they sued freaking James Cameron because it's like, well, that's not what really mm-hmm. happened. So, like, I, I to me, I not don't have a massive problem with it because this movie, to me, was never really promoted as the retelling of the yeah. Darwin. Like, like Pearl Harbor, I think people were very angry about things like yeah. that. Whereas this, as I said, like a lot of it, I don't think many people realize the Darwin bombing was going to play a part of this. So I guess you can sort of create liberties. And actually, I'm glad you brought that up about Wizard of Oz because I think that's something I was I was always thinking because like I've seen The Wizard of Oz, you know, I enjoyed it as a kid and it's sort of like, well, when, was that released around here? Like, yeah. Um, th- This is a little bit of a tangent here for a second, but this movie made me almost regret not picking another movie for the Canadian selections. There's a movie called Passchendaele, which is about probably the, the biggest battle that Canada involved in, in any war. And it was a World War One. And it's one of those things that, like, every child in Canada is taught about the Battle of Passchendaele, you know? Uh, And in 2000, same year, 2008, I think, uh, Paul Gross, the same guy that wrote, directed, produced, and starred in Men With Brooms that we covered years ago, Canada's really the only exclusive box office draw in Canada, uh, got the biggest budget ever gave into a domestic film, which is 30-something million dollars, to make this movie Passchendaele. And kind of like this movie, it came out and people were like, well, that's not really following the history of it. And and like this movie, it's like, well, that was a little bit overblown and maybe underwhelming. Um, but it would be interesting to cover that maybe in a future year. But you yeah, can do that one year and we can here. do, I mean, as much as I think the film's very overrated, Gallipoli, which is arguably oh, I'd love to do that Australia's one. most famous war battle from World War One. So, mm-hmm. yeah. We could do that. Do Gallipoli and uh, Passchendaele back to back. Australian war movies. Um, there actually are a few Australian war movies. Um, so... Well, Paul Gross actually did a, a better one about the Afghanistan war after Passchendaele, which was called Hyena Road or something like that. I've but, heard of that uh, one. You might have talked about it. Yeah, there's a few like the, yeah. the other famous one for Australia, like the Kokoda Trail was like a, a famous sort of trek that people, the soldiers had during World War Two through like Indonesia and sort of places like that. So there's a lot of, I think there's a movie literally just called Kokoda and it might have Russell Crowe or somebody attached, like somebody really big name to it attached. But um. Yeah, and there was a Gallipoli miniseries they did on, like, the 100th mm. anniversary of that. So there's, there's all these different ones. I'm going to keep talking. I'm find out who was in Kokoda. All right, so this is where they start doing the cattle drive, and this is probably the best, still the best overall sequence, everything about it from the point where they leave. You get that amazing overhead shot of all the cattle and and the, the riders around it. Uh, the soundtrack is amazing here. Mm. Uh, and here Great you soundtrack. get all, all the rich men talking about, oh, they're apparently moving cattle across so uh, whatever. And it's like, huh, but she's a woman. And it's like, oh, must have some men helping her. <laughs> now, to me, this is one of these things like it is cheesy and I'm sure he intended to be cheesy, but like, but they're not wrong. Like she doesn't know how to do this on their own and she does have men helping her. So are we supposed to look down on these, these rich guys who are like, oh, she must have men helping her. It's like, yeah, we just saw them teach her how to do this yeah. and say, you can come along, we'll show you the way. It's just—it's a little bit too much for me. Um, uh, the, there's, uh, I guess, some some 
scenes with her adjusting to the wildlife or something. This, this reminds me of, we're going to cover Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom very soon. Uh, and there's that one big sequence when they're out in the jungle and everything, and there's the, the snakes, but uh, the main female character doesn't react to Indiana Jones does, which is great. Um, the kid narrating just seems to come out of nowhere. This yeah. is where narration doesn't work in this movie. Great. When you're narrating, it should be a character who the story is told from the point of view of. This movie's not told. The story isn't told from his point of view. I, I had arguments about even Titanic's narration because Titanic is basically the old lady narrating. Let me take you back to the beginning of the story. And then you have 20 minutes of stuff she wasn't present for and never even learned from, from anybody who was alive. So how does she know? But at least that movie is still told from her point of view. And this kid, it just comes and goes. It's like it, it, either be consistent with it or don't use it at all or make him the lead character. One of the three. Um, so they, they're talking about this is when they have like the camping out at night. Nicole came in and Hugh Jackman disagreeing about child labor. Uh, he's basically saying, hey, this is how I learned as a child. The kids, kids here, it's got to work, right? It's got to work. Uh, and then we get this another amazing overhead shot of uh, David Wenham overlooking the camp. And here's where the mustache twirling really starts. They're setting fire. And this is the big action sequence of the, the movie. Cookout. It's beef. Mm. Beef cookout, yeah. This, this is a big beef cookout. This that's is how, that's how we're doing in Australia. Right, who, wants a, who wants a piece of beef? Who wants a steak? No, well, just, well done over there, really. Burgers there. Drive them into the forest and set the forest on fire. <laughs> uh, but uh, this sequence is incredible, though. Like as, as the fire starts, it's basically driving the cattle towards the cliff, and everybody's chasing after it. Now, at the same time, this is where the certain actors who maybe couldn't ride or the shots that need to be done very up close with this stampede, it stands out a lot, particularly Jack Thompson. You could tell was just can't ride anymore. We were joking about that off the air too. Star Wars. I just can't ride anymore. <laughs> um, but ultimately he's going to get dragged under and, and killed here. Um, it's the Lion King. Basically we get the Lion it, King. Scar is dead. But like even, no, Scar even the shot, <laughs> but even the shot where Jack Thompson kind of gets dragged under here. So like, Whoa, Whoa, Whoa. <laughs> it looks really bad. Oh, uh, and then as the, the cattle are basically blocked on all sides and coming towards the cliff, this is where you get the kid using the force to <laughs> stop them. <laughs> He's got his position. You haven't seen Stranger Things, but Millie Bobby Brown's character, this is no. kind of what she does. She gets, she'll get a nosebleed every time she does it. I kept watching him expecting that his nose to start bleeding I get a nosebleed every time I say Millie Bobby Brown. <laughs> one of these days you'll see her in something good. Um, one thing I, with the Jack Thompson character, they basically establish he's an alcoholic. And then he says, I'm sober now. I'll ride with you. And then he dies. And like, I want to be an alcoholic again. Like, did he need this story? Cause another one of these things, so like we want to give him some personality. So let's make it where he has to quit drinking. But then you just go back on that immediately. Anyways, I feel like the amount of personality Jack Thompson has with this character you don't need this story arc, you know? Oh, it, it, I think it's it just a bit of fun when he's dying, when he's like, oh, I'm just going to get you a drink. Like, I think it's cute. But, but, like, stretch it out more, too. Like, it, it was basically the last scene he was in. He's like, I'm not drunk anymore. And then he's like, I want to drink again. But uh, that's the it, joke, it's, it's Colin. Lot, that's what's funny about no, it. No, it, it is. It, it, I, I feel like it's dramatic. He's going for dramatic here. He's not necessarily just going for a joke. And I really believe that this is something that in that miniseries, we're going to get a lot more development for his character. And maybe this scene will play out a little bit better. Um, uh, so the, the, okay. King George is basically who everybody's assuming is killed. Nicole Kidman's husband, right? King George is the grandfather. Or do we find out he's the grandfather? Or is it only at the end of the movie? I think it's at the end of the movie, but yeah, cause he's the father of the mother who just drowned. Yeah. Cause obviously he's not, but, but yeah, we don't father. know it at this point. He's <laughs> yeah. He's just 
random Aboriginal guy that they're like, oh, he killed him. And this is where Hugh Jackman says, oh, he, I don't think he actually did it. But again, this is something that's not part of the movie. Like, no, this guy's framed for the crime. Isn't this where Jack Thompson says, like he says to Hugh Jackman, like it was a diamond, whatever speed. Like oh, he yeah. He says it's on his deathbed, whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Hugh Jackman passed that on, I think, later. But, yeah, but still, it's like, if you're going to introduce the subplot, make it a subplot. Yeah. Have it where this King George guy is in hiding and they're like, oh, we really got to clear his name. But they mention it here and it's like, King. it doesn't matter, King George. As far as we know, by the end of this movie, he doesn't even realize he was framed for murder. So what does he care? Why is it part of the movie? You know, it's one of the many issues they have with the plot of this movie and maybe just rushing it. Uh, there's another sinister shot of David Wenham looking down on them. Uh, I'll get you. <laughs> I'll get you, my pretty. Uh, we had a campfire sing-along. It's embarrassing. And I just, I've, I've mentioned here before my disdain for any type of public setting where a person just whips out a guitar for no reason. Like, I hate it. I, I despise wow. it. It is like, I don't understand why people. Colin, that's what you mentioned that. Let me just grab this. <laughs> it's like a campfire thing. And I'm like, okay, whatever. But then, sometimes it'll just be like, people have a get together and somebody just whips up. Oh, let me just start strumming here. Why are you doing this? Nobody wants to hear you strum I will your guitar. Say, to me, that is a very American thing. Um, like, <laughs> I remember being staying at T Bird's house one time. Love it a bit. We're sitting on a deck. And, like, I think, like, her husband Glenn's son had come over. And all of a sudden, they're like, oh, we've got a guitar here. Let's just have a... And there's, like, four of us. Yeah. And like, like, I'm not anti like you are, but it just... It was odd. Like, I just... Mm. And then you sing along, and then he's singing, and then T-Bird's got, like, a tambourine or something like that. And it's just me Somebody's sitting... playing the spoons. I'm just sitting Somebody's there... Somebody's blowing in a jug. <laughs> <laughs> I'm literally sitting here going... This is very American. Yeah. <laughs> um, like, I've never done this in my life. I've had musician friends who, when you're out... Like, you know, just all of a sudden, like, oh, I'm a musician. I'm going to start singing. Like, it's just like, okay, <laughs> we're doing this. Fair enough. It's like, I always like that in movies when you have, like, families get around a piano when they start, like, ling, ling, oh, yeah. Like, I'm not as angry as you are, clearly, but it is a bit of an odd thing, but good for them. It's, it's terrible. It's the worst. <laughs> it is the, it is the antithesis of people being set on fire. Colin's favorite thing versus Colin's least favorite thing. <laughs> what if somebody and it should be the opposite. Playing a guitar was then set on fire. Oh, that I'm I'm there for that. <laughs> I want that movie. I will write that movie. That is Colin's. <laughs> you need to do the AI chatbot thing and type in a script. <laughs> yes. <laughs> do it. Uh, so aside from the campfire sing along, there's a dancing scene. This is the only see part of my problem with the chemistry or what I feel lack of chemistry between Nicole Kidman and Hugh Jackman, they play their scenes well. It's not like, you know, I can't remember what the movie was we covered recently where it was like, wow, it honestly feels like they're each op acting opposite a different actor or they're not even on stage at the same time. It's not quite that. To me, this is almost more like Bryce Dallas, Texas and Chris Pratt in Jurassic World where their scenes together, their dialogue scenes are fine. But when you try to do the love story, it's like, that just doesn't feel right. Like this feels like a brother and sister. And I'm not saying that Nicole Kim and Hugh Jackman feel like a brother and sister here. It's like they did a good job, these actors having a rapport, but the love story just comes out of nowhere. Because again, we're supposed to believe she's mourning at this point. And you have this one brief dancing scene. And then just out of nowhere, half an hour later, he's going to show up at some you know, charity function. And then you instantly cut to a montage and it's like, oh, we've been happily living together for a year. Like it just, it comes out of nowhere and you don't get a chance to build. It's story that's the problem with their chemistry. That's my opinion. Eh, like I see it again, but I don't know. I just think like, 
I mean, clearly, you know, they're going to get together the poster and then the bit of like, oh, I wouldn't sleep with you if you're the only tart left in Australia. Like, I mean, you know, like, I think it builds up to a point. I agree with you on the morning of the husband. Like, she's literally just like, oh, he's dead. Oh, well, let's go ride. Like, that's silly. <laughs> because again, like, if you're going to do that, her joking about, oh, he's clearly there for one thing. Because he says, she says that to like Hugh Jackman before. Because he's, he's like slept with one Aboriginal woman. He's like, oh, yeah, clearly only after like some vagina. Like, I get it was the 30s, but Jesus, Prudat, who are you, Colin? Um, but, like, it sort of implied that a husband was sleeping around because then we've got no reason to dislike this poor husband who owned cattle and was, like, yeah. fighting the evil death. This is the, the, the biggest victim of this movie. Like, you know, um, have you watched the latest episode of Rabbit Hole when the... Episode four? Yeah. I'm I'm not done it yet, but I I started it. There's like the the funny sequence with the uh the hostage guy that they've got, who's all like, oh, I want to speak to my wife. Clearly, she's sad about me, and then like you oh, realize yeah, that yeah. <laughs> like she's sleeping I with really a neighbor. Thought she'd with be sadder than this, <laughs> and she's sleeping with a neighbor. Like one day later, suddenly just like, well, this got awkward. Uh, like the email later. Yeah, I was kind of afraid that we might see someone like that. Yeah. Uh, what else is on? <laughs> like, this is where I feel like you need to kind of have this, like, the dead husband's, like, actually alive. Hey, Nicole! And it's like, oh, you're hooking up with Drover? Oh, that was my job. But I don't know. Like, I just, I think the thing that sells this chemistry really well is, like, they don't just go, I, like, good comparison, like, with Bryce Dallas, Texas, and Chris Pratt, because there were definitely elements of this film that kind of reminded me of Jurassic World with this relationship yeah. that, like, You've got this stuck-up snooty, like, oh, I'm a woman, but I'm, like, busy, but, oh, no, I'm going to get on a horse, and yah, rah, like, and then 10 minutes later, she's, like, running from a T-Rex in heels. But, like, <laughs> I love that scene in Australia, the T-Rex scene. <laughs> Can't wait for that to be in the Hulu Plus show. But, like, I think what sells this chemistry is kind of this scene when they break away and sort of have a chat, like... You probably hate it because you don't like anything to do with romance. No, the like, opposite. I I like the scene, and but this is all we get. But I love that this kiss to me has got enough passion and build up to it that that sells it to me because it's like it's not just a standard like movie. I'm gonna kiss. It's like literally like a thirty second moment where their lips are almost touching, and like you just that sells it to me because you're like, oh, do it, like oh, the chemistry. This oh, look at this, and then you they do it, and then they kiss, and like it just. This is done in a way from that point on, which works. And I think like props to Nicole Kidman because like she does a like and Hugh Jackman, they've got such a balance of like comedy that they can shift to this darkness. And obviously this movie at the time was considered like, oh, this is going to be Oscars. Like, you know, and obviously I think got nominated for one and not to say that both of these two clearly deserved an Oscar nomination, but in a lesser year, they probably could have because I've definitely seen actors who have been nominated for Oscars who have done worse than this, uh, you know? So I love this sequence when they kind of like make out and then they're on board and I'm on board with the, the Nicole and, and Hugh train. Tell you one thing, if they if they ever hooked up, like I know Hugh Jackman just celebrated like 20 years with old Deb, Debbie Finesse or whatever her name is and obviously Nicole and that, but like if, you know, they Angelina and, and uh, Brad Pitted, uh, off this movie, I think Australia would be happy. Like, yeah, fuck Keith Urban, <laughs> fuck Debbie. Get these two together. Australia, yeah. Right up there with Jack Thompson and Brian Brown. That's oh, what we want together. There's a couple. <laughs> when Avril Lavigne and Chad Kroger were together, like, come on. <laughs> Canada's uh, Harry and uh, Harry and Megan. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I, I will say I like this scene. I just wish that they had done more than this because they do almost nothing else from this point on. Uh, it's just a couple of montages. Um, so basically after this, he tells the story about, oh, he had a wife, but she died because people were racist. Uh, and then, um, 
they get to a water hole and there's water there. Like, Somebody poisoned the they water hole. <laughs> but like, is it poisoned or is it I just, so. oh, it's dried up? I think okay, well, it's, it's also very like muddy. Yeah, I think it's kind of, it's a bit Toy Story. Somebody's poisoned the water hole. There's a snake in my boot. Um, yeah. <laughs> but okay, can I just jump in here? You might be saying it. Sorry if I'm preempting you here. Yeah. This is my biggest problem when it comes to story in this film and it being rushed. And I hope the TV show does this because you get this sequence of, Oh, crikey, the water's oh, poisoned. Yeah, it's horrible. We have to go four days and blah, blah, blah. Oh, here comes, you know, King George, who any Australian Survivor fan, that is a different meaning nowadays, King George. But um, it's just like, oh, crikey, what are we going to do? Next minute, cut to Essie Davis. Oh, look, a cow. We're back. And it's like, did we just miss a whole sequence of this movie? Exactly. That's exactly what I was going to say. This is one of those montages that are there because we had to get the running time down because they make it this impossible task Oh, that's never, never land. It takes three days to cross that. Even if you know the way, oh, we don't know the way. Wait, there's a guy. He knows the way. Oh, but we still won't make it. Well, we got to try. And then you get a couple of shots of like sand blowing and people walking and like, you know, Lawrence of Arabia is like the ultimate, you know, desert film ever made. And Lawrence of Arabia, they have a sequence like this. And yes, that's a four plus hour movie compared to this, which is almost three hour movie. But they do kind of a montage of Lawrence of Arabia in this similar thing where they're crossing a desert and they don't even take that long on it. It's like two, three minutes, but it's enough so that you feel like, oh, how are they ever going to get through here? And like, like you said, you cut to wh- wh- wherever they're they're taking the docks where they're supposed to take this. Like, what's that? It's cattle. And then they're riding in. Da, 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 da. And like, I want to see them looking like they're on the verge of death. You know, like yeah. they're driving the cattle, but they're like gasping like, oh, the, the docks, the docks, like make us feel like they just came out of three days in the desert. <laughs> Here's the comparison you've been waiting for. The air up there. When <laughs> when Kevin Bacon, when they're getting ready for the big basketball game and Kevin Bacon's sticking around to help them out and they're like, the whole thing about them is cattle and it's sort of like, oh, you know, we're going to pay with the cows and that sort of stuff. And you've got this scene where Kevin Bacon's like struggling with the cows, but the next minute he's walking into the village because he's white saviour Kevin Bacon in that movie, of course. <laughs> and he's all like, rah, 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 look at me, I've got cows, I'm Kevin Bacon. Like explaining like 10 seconds worth of movie, but air up there, did it better. Now, when they bring the cattle in here, this is where Brian Brown's like, ah, oh, but I'm not taking that because I guess he's supposed to be the guy purchasing it. So it, it, I, I wasn't paying that close attention. Also, you can't recognize him the same way because he has color to his hair. But is is, ben, is this where Ben Mendelsohn's introduced? Yeah, so he's is like... He that, yeah, he's the guy. He's, he's like the, a military officer because, in charge of cattle? Well, because I think like, well, what the, the plot here, which he's kind of glossed over, is that this is why this sequence, there's got to be more to it, is because they're trying to sell cattle to the army to like feed the troops. So this is like, mm. that's what I think a lot of the David Wenham stuff early on is about. So this is basically Brian Brown going like, yeah, well, you've got no option. Far away down there, shit. So you sign this document and all the army are going to be fed. And then Nicole Kimmer shows up like, hello, Ben Mendelsohn. We'll give you 25% less for our cattle. And he's like, oh. But then this is where I think this is silly too, because literally Ben Mendelsohn is like, because Brian was like, no, I signed a contract, crocky, crocky. And he's all like, well, actually, I'm Ben Mendelsohn. I'm a bit British. Uh, it, <laughs> it doesn't become valid until the cows are on the boat. Like, what the fuck yeah. does that mean? <laughs> so, like, But then even then, like, does the Nicole even have a leg up? Like, all of a sudden, they get him on the, the boat. Yeah, rah, rah. It's like, well, I've actually signed a document. You haven't signed anything. Like, get your fucking cows <laughs> off my boat. Like, this is the army. Like, I don't know how that works. Yeah, I mean, it still it gives us another fun sequence where you know they're driving the cattle along the docks and everything 
Uh, once they finally get it there, this is where the celebration starts. Uh, but sorry, there's no ladies' lounge in the bar here. Oh, the women have to wait outside. Um, this is where Nicole Kidman says crikey, which just felt very out of place. Crikey. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but like you were saying, the overuse of it in this movie, but Nicole Kidman saying like, why is she saying this? It would be like you just all of a sudden, if we, we're here in Canada and we, we're, I don't know, doing some impossible task and we finish and you're like, a like <laughs> I honestly, is, is there context just saying crikey for no reason i honestly like will text and sometimes i will use the word a and i have used the word a just in like more so like an actual canadian uses it not like mm. most people think canadians use it but yeah like i don't like i mean crikey is a word we use in australia but not to the extent that like g'day mate things like that yeah. that are stereotypical we do use in everyday speak i use in everyday speak but like crikey very yeah. rare, you know. It's one in the outback they might use, but I like you got to love like a movie like oh how horrible humans were when women only had a bar back in 1939. So let's take a stand to the man. It's like well you know they were sexist back then, misogynist dinosaurs. So <laughs> uh, now I'm going to cover everything up to when Nicole Kidman and Hugh Jackman here get together because that's where the the movie definitely shifts. So uh, we get a quick scene here with um, Brian Brown on the phone with David Wenham telling him how unhappy he is. I rewound this. They're with an eyesight of each other. Why <laughs> the phone? He's literally on a balcony overlooking across the street where he is. And he calls him up. And he's like, hello. I just want to say I'm very disappointed in you. <laughs> and I'm sorry, father. Why is this a phone call? It's just a, a thing that makes no sense in this movie. Um, this is going to be, I think the last we get a Brian Brown in this movie because he gets killed basically the crocodiles after uh, this. We get him in the, we get him in the bowl. Oh yeah. There's a one scene there. Uh, so the Nulla, the boy, uh, basically says, oh, and it was a happy ending. Drover got his horse. Cause that was basically the deal. Nicole Kidman made him. Hey, if you do this, you can fuck uh, now my I Fletcher. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Have your way with her. Uh, and Nicole Kidman. Good looking horse too, by the way. That's a sexy horse right there. Yeah. Uh, Nicole Kidman is going to be selling the downs and basically everybody's happy except for me. Uh, and I don't know why he's unhappy at that point. Like, does, is there a reason why is my mother's still dead? Like they just say, and everybody's happy except for me. And then the next time he has a narration, he's like, and everybody was happy. I'm like, okay, so why did you feel the need to tell us everyone's happy, but me he's like not feelings, show a Colin. for being unhappy, <laughs> but he, they, we don't, we're not shown his feelings to explain it. You know, it's some of the, one of these things that maybe the, the director's cut's going to explain. Um, Nicole Kidman's getting all dressed up to go to the ball here and she's offering Hugh Jackman the job as a manager. Uh, he says, uh, uh, I can't go to the ball with you cause I'm too black to go to the ball. <laughs> I know what it's like to be a black man. This is him doing his best Natalie Portman here and saying he knows what it's like to be black. Uh, we get a bunch of people watching the wizard of Oz. So now the movie's finally been released here. Uh, when she walks into the ball, it's basically treated like it's the bachelorette. It's like, oh, you got to meet this man. And oh, I want to be introduced to her. Uh, the audience has already forgotten she's married. So you have all these characters bringing it up. I'm like, oh, but she's talking to Ben Mendelsohn, I think, the here, right? And it's like, oh, but she's married. Or, or it was, I don't know if it was Ben Mendelsohn or somebody else. No, it's the other There's guy. Here. The, yeah, the, the, you, you know him. He, he, Bruce, yeah. Yeah. Cause he's like, he's the, the bastard who's like, we're breeding the black out of them. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So basically the, all the people there are trying to talk to her, but she's talking to Bruce Spence. And I actually know I'm like, I didn't realize he was in this movie because it's oh, a small he's in role, every Australian movie. Come on. Exactly. I mean, he, <laughs> but he was in the Matrix and yeah. uh, Star Wars, even the ones that film there. And of course, he was in like two, two Mad Max movies playing completely different characters. He was characters. a villain in the second Ace, one of the villains in the second Ace Ventura movie. Remember that? Oh, was he? Yeah. I barely remember he that. He plays movie. an Australian, funnily enough. <laughs> <laughs> of course he did. Uh, now, now, you don't really get perspective because we talked about how huge he is. He's like a six foot, six, six foot seven man or something like that. But I think this just shows how tall Nicole Kidman yeah, Nicole is. Nicole Kidman's very tall. Yeah, she's like, I think, six feet or over six feet. But I'm watching this scene. I'm like, this is the first time I've ever seen Bruce Spence not look like a giant towering <laughs> over somebody. Uh, but yeah, this is where he drops that line about breeding the black in them, which I actually noted. I'm glad you mentioned that was like the government slogan because I'm like, there's no way that people actually said that, you know, or at least publicly. But apparently they did. Oh, yeah. Uh, very dark history in Australia. <laughs> why do people now, think Australia is a racist country? I wonder why. <laughs> now, I don't understand why you had all these characters talk about, oh, but she, she she's still a widow. Her husband was just killed. Why she have all these men all over? And they're auctioning, auctioning off a dance with her, right? But they're trying to make it like these people are judging her because she's actually just trying to talk about adopting this boy. But then it ends with her being bid on by Brian Brown, dancing with him, and then having this nice romantic dance with Hugh Jackman. So you're setting up, this is none of these things that's just confusing. Baz Luhrmann is setting up a scene where people are judging, oh, they're terrible. They're judging her character, thinking that she's just trying to get another husband. But the scene literally ends with her getting another husband. Like, why have these characters judging her and try to have us look down on them? I think it's more of a, a high society snobbery thing. And then she basically at the end is just kind of like, well, fuck you all. Like, I'm going to go off and be but, with Hugh Jackman and I don't care what people think about me. But like the high society snobbery are actually right. And this is to me, this well, is the same thing as that. Well, she's just a woman. She must have a man helping her. It's like, no, yeah, I, like, <laughs> she I, hired him to help. Like I get the like the widow aspect of like, I think it's I think it's more of that. It's like it's frowned upon in society about you know, being married is for life and, you know, often even like divorce, you know, and then even like widows often are frowned upon that you shouldn't remarry and things like that. Like it's, I think it's just more of a, oh, like, and I think they obviously, they're trying to imply a lot here with the whole fact that she wants to adopt little Nala. Like I think, cause that's, mm -hmm. that's still like a, you know, I think the one thing that does it is not often explored. You touched on like the, the half race situation. I feel that doesn't really get fully explored with, with Nala. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I like, I, I, again, see what you're saying, but, I think it's fun because like this is really like important because this is kind of like Brian Brown's basically swayed her into like selling the property, but then she's all like, "No, I'm going to." Handsome man just walked in. Can I just say this? I even I got heart flutters when Hugh Jackman walks in. He's hot. Like, <laughs> well, damn. Basically, the only thing happened here is it rains, so we could get everybody out there celebrating, which the is rain, a rare but, thing in that part yeah. of the country. I will say. So I'll break here, but. The, the, another one of these things where, where Baz Luhrmann's like, okay, this cartoony style, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't because he walks in and everybody immediately stops and is silent. But when you see how far he away he is from everybody, there's no way they know who just walked in the door, especially since he doesn't look anything like the way they expect him to look. So it's supposed to be like, is he allowed in here? But like, nobody could see this man. <laughs> I think it's a bit of a, yeah, it's a, it's a, shouldn't be here, but it's also, I think it's a bit like, um, again, Titanic when Jack comes down the stairs and, and Billy Zane's like, oh, Dawson, you scrub up all right. Like, you know, it's kind of, it's kind but of, they could at least see him. They were like 10 feet away, not 150 feet away. I do love the fact that Colin's like subtly defending Titanic in this movie. Uh, sometimes <laughs> every now, like he gets brought up. Um, it's going to stop. I <laughs> just quickly on the whole cattle sequence like it's epic uh and like i totally get like the special effects 100 uh like 
some of them don't hold up, but this is like, it's kind of like what we talked about in tomorrow when the war began, like there's that sequence where they're all standing in front of that green screen. Like it looks a bit, you know, odd, but this is just one of those ones where I feel like you can kind of, it's kind of endearing and charming in a way that like they mix it. It's not like, Oh God, that looks terrible to me. Like it's more just like a, okay. But it's, but it's that Baz Luhrmann style. Like, I mean, Elvis had a lot of that over the top kind of like stuff where it looked a bit fake, but it works. And it's sort of like, Moulin Rouge from memory kind of had a lot of that. Like it's deliberately over the top where it's meant to look that way. And that's where I think kind of, I like it in a way. Like, I don't know. Like it just, it, it, it does the job for me. Um, I thought you would be more excited about, I know, I know it's mainly about humans getting burnt, but all the cows getting burnt potentially. Um, yeah, as I touched on, I hope they do definitely explore more around this like randomness of like, crikey, we can't get over the Never Never Land. Hello, I'm Nicole Kidman. I'll take 25% less. Da, 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 da. We win. Uh, <laughs> like, it, yeah, the, totally this movie does shift often, um, but it's also like randomness of things happening. Um, I, like, one thing I actually going back to like, and kind of coming forward, going back, coming forward. I like that first scene when you have Nicole Kidman with little Nala explain like, I'm going to tell you a story. It's about Oz. Like it kind of like it works. And I love it when she's trying to sing somewhere over the rainbow. Um, and I actually honestly thought like, oh, Colin's going to find this really cheesy, this whole somewhere over the rainbow stuff. But like, I think it kind of works. I like it. Yeah. Um, and I think like this ball sequence, is it they're bidding for a dance or is this like back when they used to do those things and, like well, I don't even know what those balls are called. The um, what are the the balls called when like you, the teenage girls get like flaunted off to the, like it's like a, no, it's, you know. I mean, there's there's things where where it's like boy asks girl, guy asks boy, oh, guy asks boy. No, they've, they've got a they've got a name. It's sort of like it was a society thing that like you know once your your teenage daughter got to a certain age, you would have oh, like a, coming out, coming yeah, like sort of one of those sort of things, like you know, and like. Mm. You sort of would bid on them. Like it was in um, Groundhog Day. You've got that bit where they're all bidding on Bill Murray. $500. Like, you know, they'll spend I, I the was, night with I them. was thinking Batman Forever with Poison Ivy. And I will build $20,000. <laughs> <laughs> like it's just certain ones like that where like I felt like this is the thing. But um, anyway, I, I love it like when Hugh Jackman walks in and then she walks off. And then that the 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 MC of the ball is basically like, Foxtrot. And they're like, duh, 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 duh. <laughs> like sometimes like I just, I'd love to go back in time to have one of these high society things where you've just got to like, you're so proper, like you define a dance. Like, oh, right now it's this, like, I've never seen The Great Gatsby, but I know like the 20s kind of got like a bit of a boost in popularity after that sort of stuff. But sometimes I just watch these things of like high society and that and just, I'm not, you know, coordinated and shit like that, but like fun to dress up, right? Like have you ever dressed up in a tux, Colin? My wedding and other people's weddings, whenever I was in a wedding party. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Um, <laughs> I barely wore a suit at my own wedding, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> but um, yeah, I know. And I like the like this, the um, the real piece of music that I love in this film is it's this rain sequence where sort of you've got Hugh Jackman and that going off to hook up. And that's this is where I think you've got uh, David Wenham getting shoved down by Brian Brown. Oh, shit, man, boys, a man job. And you've got that like real dramatic score that's going on in the background, like like I really enjoy that piece of music. But um, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. Well, briefly, now that we're out there, briefly talking about the whole shift here because the montage is going to come where the everybody is happy montage. This would be labeled uh, because, as I said, the complaint of 
the kid saying, everybody's happy, but I wasn't. And then we literally never see the kid again. Two scenes happen and they come back and everybody is happy. Like, okay, so what changed? <laughs> like, let's see he's your story. He's being turned white. He's playing tennis. He's wearing <laughs> yeah. a shirt. And that's the end of the story. <laughs> Becoming white makes you happy. Da -da -da -da, they, bred the <laughs> they bred out the white in me. Uh, but uh, yeah, this montage here that happens right after that, that shove down scene, this is where you see the crocodile eating Brian Brown. And this is where David Wenham basically takes over. You also see the brief flash about uh, Lady Ashley to wed Drover. <laughs> hot, hot off the press this year. Uh, it's fun to have a montage like this. But again, they, they give way too much information in this montage that needs to be explained. Like, uh, why it, did this falling out happen with the Babe Wenham and the father-in-law? You know, mm. uh, you introduced this love story. Again, you've had one brief scene of them dancing. You had another brief scene of them in the rain, and then all of a sudden they're married. Like, let's let's show something there. You know, Let, let's let's show the characters at least in this montage. They're barely even shown. It's headlines about them. But this is where my defense of David Wenham comes because David Wenham has at this point done everything that was asked of him. Now, from this point on, he becomes quite reasonable in comparison to Brian Brown. He's offering good prices, right? He's obviously trying to leverage the kid later on too. Not not defending that, but I feel like he's being a lot more upfront and honest about everything. And he's also giving what I think is supposed to be, is not meant to be a sympathetic side to the character, but it makes me feel sympathetic when he tells Nicole Kim and listen, I'm the reason that this, you know, ranch succeeded in the first place. I did all the work here. And now I'm starting to feel for this guy. Cause I'm like, well, they reaped the benefits and what has he got? His father-in-law took everything. You know, he, he was made the fall guy for the father-in-law's plan not working. So this is where I feel like he's not the ultimate villain. Maybe maybe show a little bit more like that falling out with Brian Brown. Don't don't have where Brian Brown's like, you went too far, son-in-law. Eh. And then all of a sudden he takes over and he's a Nazi? I see it, but I don't. Like, I think he was making it run and work that way because his whole plan was to get the farm. So, like, he was basically doing that. As a, you know, as a long con so that he could reap the benefits and get it. And then he was also at the same time killing a husband, uh, you know, making the water not work so it looked like it was shit, stealing the cattle. Like, I don't know. Like, this is maybe one where... But he comes in and offers a very fair deal here. Yeah, but then he still, like, <laughs> you know, gets to a point where he's chipping off the kid off to the island and basically getting, but like, inciting violence because he's shooting dogs and, like, it's just... I don't know. Like at the end of the day, again, like this is one of the rare occasions where I feel the villain actually is a villain and there's nothing really redeeming about him. But isn't this what you just explained made Cal less of a villain in Titanic because he started out basically responding the way he should. And as things continue to not go his way, he got worse and worse. David Wenham, everything he did in the first half of the movie, he was being ordered by his father-in-law. And then his father-in-law abandons him. He comes in, he's offering a very fair deal. He's trying to be diplomatic and then things don't go, go his way, and then he progressively gets worse and worse. Uh, no, I don't think it's comparable because I think Cal shouldn't slap bros um, and then shouldn't try and shoot people. But outside of that, Cal does nothing wrong. Cal's reacting <laughs> to the fact that his fiance is going behind his back and cheating on him, and he's only just trying to provide a good life for her. Whereas yeah. like this, it's like I think everything David Wenham's doing is pretty evil to get well, what I, he wants. So I think like I'm not I, saying that they're at the same level, but I'm saying everything is still there. There is still something in David Wenham where I'm like, it was everything that happened in the first half of the movie was not to do with him. He was being told to do this by somebody who gets off scot free in this movie. But then when he but then he kills the guy doing <laughs> that and then still continues to be a prick. Like 
Yeah, I like. I I don't know if I fully agree. I, and but that's not to take away. Like, I I like his character because I love Dave Wenham and I love him being moustache twirling villain. I think it's great. But I think this is kind of one of those rare moments where, like, as much as I like the villain, I'm probably team good people because I feel they're doing this for the betterness of life and- versus. You know, you're you know, fucking my 19 year old, 17 year old Kate Winslet or whatever it was. I thought you were saying Nicole Kidman was 17 here. <laughs> she's definitely uh, not 17. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Nicole Kidman. <laughs> but uh, this is one of these things where Baz Luhrmann's cartoony style he had in the first half of the movie, as much as I feel like it, it doesn't work with the second half of this movie and it's very distracting, seeing that cartoony style has made you accept David Wenham as the mustache twirling villain. Yeah. And it, it's easier to accept him the second. Whereas if this whole movie was like the second half of the movie, his character, I feel is like, well, this is way too over the top. This is supposed to be like a historical drama. You don't need a character that is this irredeemable, but I actually like the cartoony nature of him with all those sinister, you know, looking over the ridge down on them and everything. And, and, and even the, the, the way that he, you know, tries to leverage the child later and even kill the, to me, I, I should be more bothered by that's way too much, but I'm like, I actually end this movie like, what a great villain, you know? Yeah. It, it is it is cheesy. It maybe doesn't belong. It's like Pearl Harbor. There's so much about the movie Pearl Harbor. It's like that could have worked, but you just, you too Michael bait it. And if you Baz Luhrmann a little bit more than Michael Bay, maybe Pearl Harbor works, you know? because like Pearl Harbor such a long time. I made an edit. I, I would love to uh, show it to you one day. I made an edit of Pearl Harbor where I basically cut like 45 minutes out of the movie, rearranged certain scenes and everything. And I showed it to my brother because we both had the opinions like Pearl Harbor is such a mess. I'm like, I want you to tell me if this is a version. And he goes, it's the best version of Pearl Harbor I've ever seen. But still, there's things you can't save about that movie. Release Michael the Bay. Hilding Cut. <laughs> I, I, that, on Patreon, if if we get one person, sign up to Patreon for one month, I will share the Hilding Cut of Pearl Harbor with you. Cool. We're um, illegally pirating films and sharing <laughs> there them you go. for $3 for a month. <laughs> Student, no, don't say months. Month. <laughs> right. Good. Good to see that uh, us going to jail for calling Tom Cruise gay is not happening, but pirating intellectual property is now a thing. Good. It's Pearl Harbor. Nobody cares. And I will uh, release the Waterworth cut of Australia. Kill oh, kill Phil. Oh, well, right on. All the bonus scenes that were cut. <laughs> the eight-hour version of Ben singing all by myself. That was that was the first thing I thought of there. It's like, is there a longer version of that song? It's me doing it oh. in rap, in ska, in metal, in country. <laughs> there's, there's a this going off base again. I'll finish the movie after this. I'll, 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 we don't have much left in story. I'll wrap it up. But uh, the Nicolas Cage movie Renfield, where he plays the Dracula or whatever. Uh, we saw that last night. It was Jamie's birthday choice, so she wanted to see it. Um, not crazy about it. Not a great movie, but. There's a joke in that movie about ska music where I'm like, that's maybe the most brilliant joke I've ever heard in my entire life. Uh, so we'll that, talk about a ska month coming soon. That's like, uh, I know we sort of weren't super high on Space Jam 2, but we obviously love the Michael Jordan joke. And yeah. somebody actually shared that on Facebook the other day, like maybe the greatest cameo in the history of movies. <laughs> and I just rewatched it. And still to this day, I just crack up laughing. Michael Jordan! <laughs> like, Michael B. Jordan? It's like, ah. <laughs> Anyways, I feel the fact that Fletcher says, oh, I'm the one who worked the land all these years. I'm like, it gives you some sympathy for him. I I would love to see this story told from his point of view. And I'm hoping that there's more with him because I I think as much as I like the whole evil villain thing here, I'd also love to see a version of this where you see his point of view because you never get that in this movie. Uh, Nella wants to do a walkabout. Now, this is something we, we 
definitely have seen in other movies. This is kind of something that's known John about us in Lost. John Locke, John Locke and walk, yeah, walk about and Lost. Couldn't do it. Um, in a they, have, they have this. In, was it mentioned or something in Crocodile Dundee? Probably. I thought there was it, some mention. It is a thing. Yeah. It's uh, like in the air up there when the uh, African <laughs> tribes people have to go on their little discovery tour up the mountain, and Kevin Bacon does it. Um, so. Now, now, here's where I actually find it really interesting with the dynamic of them being parents to this kid or whatever, because Nicole Kidman says, no, you're not going to do that. That's dangerous. And Hugh Jackman has a defense here where he's like, he's not your kid, you know, and it, this is their culture. Why are you trying to rob him of their culture? The movie gets kind of confusing, though, when the friend comes in later on, the aboriginal friend of Hugh Jackman's, who's like, you let her take him on a walkabout. But why would you do that? He's just a child. I'm like, he's the uncle. I thought the whole point well. of this. But, but do we know he's the uncle? In yeah, this? you hear it because you're pretty sure, like you hear, this is the mm. the brother of the mother. But, but like, I, I I don't know. I, I I like that there's no clear answer on this. I'm not saying this in a bad way, but like, do we know what position they're trying to say? Like, oh, he should do this because that is his culture, or he shouldn't do that because he's a child and they don't know well. Because in the end, the kid goes on a walk. Oh, that's the end of the movie. I mean, he, he goes I think more it's, than that. But. It's yeah, I, I I put it down to he's a half-breed to Nicole Kidman's doing the whole like, well, uh, this is better for him. And I think this is kind of trying to like toe that line of, oh, we're white, we know better. This is barbaric. He's a child. You know, he shouldn't go in this versus, uh, well, this is their culture. Like as a child, yeah. they do this. Uh, they know the land better than any of us white folks. So like he's going to be safe. Like. Yeah, it's but a like balance. I like even though the, the friend disagrees with this because you're, it shows you're presenting two different opinions here. And, and the fact is, like most people would side with, oh, this is their culture. But at the same time, when you're watching a historical movie and you're seeing parts of culture that don't hold up well, at, at what point is it OK to determine you can't hold on to that culture because we don't agree with it? Because there's things like that even in today's day and well, age where another country, this is normal for them, but we judge them. This is not on the same page, but it kind of is on the same page. It's like fighting in hockey, like on this day and age yeah. when like concussions and violence, it's, you know, very taboo. We shouldn't be doing it. Like that is such a cultural element. If the NHL tomorrow said no fighting in hockey, you'd probably lose half the fan base in a, in a five minute notice, right? Cause like that's such a cultural thing, but maybe in 50 to hundred years time, enough of the generation has moved on that they will outlaw it. If you know what I mean? Mm hmm. Yeah, I actually I like that comparison. That's yeah, <laughs> yeah. Nothing to do with rah, nothing rah. to do with <laughs> cultural uh, uh, heritage or whatever. Um, but uh, this is where we get the least impactful breakup in the history of cinema. Because um, <laughs> yeah. not only is the scene basically like, well, maybe you shouldn't come back. All right, see ya. Um, not only is that, but like again, we haven't known these characters to be together. The last time they had a proper scene together, they weren't even together yet. They became a couple at the end of that ball. Then you had a montage. And the next time these two characters even interact is in the scene where they break up. Like, so wh what is their relationship? And the breakup scene is just so, again, blink and you miss it. And maybe the director could have had more of this. Look, okay, two things on that. I think in the montage, you at least get some like romantic shots of them. They're fucked. You've got like slow sweeping things and all that kind of stuff. But let's just say, Colin, at least a montage shows the passage of time where people can fall in love and you understand that that is possible. Don't get there into There is Casino a certain Royale. movie that I seem to recall in which two characters are all of a sudden apparently blindingly in love because apparently time has passed because somebody's balls got mashed. So, gotta <laughs> say it right now, Australia does it better. Disagree. Hard disagree on that. Uh, I think that I noted it here, but again, I, I this must be another thing where it's like blink and you miss it. This movie's just rushing by too quickly. King George gets arrested. 
He says um, the, the dog here, like, or whatever it is. So, like, I think this is part, going back to what I was saying, where David Wyndham's sort of, like, inciting violence because, like, he's got the people on his land and there's, like, uh, one of Wyndham's, like, mercenary people who's, like, kills Nulla's dog. So then, and Nulla gets taken here, too. Because Nulla goes to, like, run at him and he's all like, no! And then, basically, King George goes to try and protect... Uh, I think King George kills the cop guy as well. Like, I think kind of... <laughs> we just watched the Super Saiyan, we think. No, That's pretty... the problem with too many montages. No, he does. He does kill him. So, he... yeah. Or does he? Or am I just implying racism? Uh, no, I think he does kill him. <laughs> <laughs> so so I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to illustrate this here, okay? What we had was the, the ballroom scene. Yeah. Then we had a montage. Then we had David Wenham trying to offer money for the land and everything. Then we had the breakup scene. Then we have a montage. Then we get this stuff with Nulla being taken. Then we get another montage. There are three montages over the course of maybe... There's there's more montage than there are scenes at this point. And it's like movie, a three-year you know? passage of time as well, because I think we're now yeah, like in we 1942. Pearl Harbor. Yeah. Yeah, we jumped through to Pearl Harbor and everything. And this is one of the things I wondered, like, because they showed Pearl Harbor and uh, not knowing all the Australian history, I wasn't sure how closely tied Pearl Harbor was to this... this uh, evacuation of darwin and everything i think it's because like that's why they're on like mission i island or whatever it's called because that's like the station point and like there were there were several parts around australia where people were on alert you know even though it was always a rarity that they were going to attack but then it was kind of like well they're moving forward and i think it was more of a they've attacked pearl harbor now they're moving south and that's a lot of what they were doing through indonesia and the kokoda stuff so they were always on alert but I, yeah i'm pretty sure the bombing of darwin wasn't that long after pearl harbor um, like, yeah, I, I can look that up. Bombing of Darwin was in 19th of February, 1942. When was Pearl Harbor? Uh, December 1941. Well, there you go. So literally three months. Um, yeah. two months, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, now this is going to be a weird comparison here. A couple weird comparisons, but where this movie struggles by introducing the war into it, like you said, out of nowhere for like 10 minutes of the movie it's very similar to Memoirs of a Geisha or Captain Crowley's Mandolin with Nicolas Cage. Uh, Never seen both either of those. <laughs> both of those were movies taking place in, for American films, foreign countries, really trying to showcase the culture of the land. You know, this odd couples falling in love and you throw war stuff in there and it just feels out of place. Now, of these three movies that did that, this one definitely handles it the best because it plays a part for this last I don't know, 45 minutes of the movie here, but it still also is like, okay, is this a new movie? You know, cause you're jumping forward in time. And I feel like you're covering too much ground. Like the characters have changed. This is a gone with the wind thing, you know, gone with the wind at least has an intermission break where all of a sudden you pick up and it's like a year later and, Oh, look at how much life has changed. But like Nicole Kidman is working, what a switchboard or something like that here. She's got a regular job. I think it's a signal know, every- station. They're like, again, getting signals from, the island to just monitor, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. But like, I want it. I want more of this. I want to know more about this. I'm, make this, a, 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 it'd be too daring to do it in 2008, but make this a two part movie. Make it Australia part one and Australia part two, you know? Or make this movie long enough that you need an intermission break or just the miniseries might fill this in. I, I, this is another thing where I'm really hoping that it doesn't just come out of nowhere and, oh, we're in the war now. You know, I want to know more about this during the war stuff here. Um, so she's trying to get Nulla back and everything. Uh, we get Hugh Jackman talking to the, the the brother, his brother, not his brother-in-law, but the brother-in-law, David Wenham, the the the, the uncle of Nulla. 
And this is the whole thing about the the walkabout. Well, you shouldn't have let him do that. Uh, which again, I like that you have an Aboriginal saying no, maybe not. Uh, instead of just you know, oh well, we we can't strip him of his culture, or whatever. Um, I guess Nicole Kidman is more open to selling now. We get a plane attack, so this is a brief battle scene. Uh, we have Hugh Jackman coming back after the attack has happened, and you see he's far far away down, burning, and I'm guessing he's assuming. I don't even know if they ever stated the movie, but he's assuming. The Nicole Kidman is dead. Here. Oh, this isn't far away. Down's burning. This is the the place where she worked. Yeah. Oh, okay. It, it's sort of it's implied that Nicole Kidman is dead, and then essentially you find out it's actually Essie Davis who has died because that's why David went and gets shitty because basically Nicole Kidman is like, oh, you work my shift, I need to go get Nulla. So Nicole Kidman should have died because they all thought she was working when secretly she wasn't. She was off trying to get little Nulla back. But but is is it before this or after this though when? All the women are judging Nicole Kibben because she's literally touching Nulla. It's like she's touching the black baby. It's just and when she's fighting for him on the wharf because it's basically. And, and David Wenham's wife is the one who's the only one saying defending. it's like, oh, that poor child. Yeah. yeah. Which then, again, a character that needed more development. It's because and then she's going to go off to Mission Island to get him back um, mm-hmm. because I think she's I think this is where she's had the deal with David Wenham and basically said like, okay, you let me go get my boy back. You can have far away down. Yeah. Like, yep. You, and because he's he's basically like blackmailing her at the same time as well. So yeah, yeah. And and as much as I'm critical of the love story, I feel like the the on both sides, Hugh Jackman and Nicole Kidman, the whole adopted child relationship is handled a lot better than the love story is in this movie. Because you give it that development, you have the over the rainbow scene, and you actually get. It feels like it matters here where she's fighting to get this kid back and yeah. she's willing to give up everything else I, that she had, you know? I agree. And I think one thing that's like hopefully will be explored a little bit more because it kind of, you know, when they're talking, when Hugh Jackman's saying about his dead wife and then like, oh, I didn't have children. And then it's like, oh, did you have children? And she's just like, no, I can't. Because she says at the line, like, mm-hmm. I'm not motherly. But I think that kind of is implied because she's obviously got a condition where she can't have children. So I think that kind of mm-hmm. just gets a bit like, like I, I wanted this to be a bit more like, you know, Grant in Jurassic Park, like hate kids, but by the end of it, he loves them. Like this kind of is yeah. like, oh, somewhere over the rainbow. And then it's all like, oh, I can't have children. Like, oh, like, and then, yeah, I agree with you. Like, I love this dynamic where they sort of become adoptive parents, but I feel, again, you can explore more with that. Uh, Hugh Jackman trying to mourn. He thinks Nicole Kidman's death goes in the bar. They weren't serve as friend. Um, he punches out uh, a guard. He kidnaps a priest. He goes to an island. Um, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, and at this point, Ben Mendelsohn has suddenly become a major character in the movie, like a major character out of nowhere. The the tone is very different. This is where all of Baz Luhrmann's touches are gone from the movie. Uh, and and I'm not faulted. I actually like this section better, even though it's less Baz Luhrmann-like. Uh, it's just, I feel like Baz Luhrmann didn't know how to balance his style in a movie like this. And this also, I also think this is like what you were mentioning about. He decided he wanted to make a movie about Australia and originally it was something else. And then he's like, no, I'll just do this. It, it, a lot of this to me feels like he wanted to do a big Australian epic, but didn't know what he wanted to make. And in the end, he's like, I've got a couple ideas. I'm not sure how they're going to come together. Uh, Yeah. And I think like, if you did it on the first fleet, it wouldn't be as, totally different and even then like i mean i guess if you wanted to focus on indigenous issues you could easily do that with the invasion of australia and things like that whereas this it's sort of yeah pick your poison like i mean again i get that the stolen generation is kind of intertwined with this time period with darwin bombing but i feel like just make it all about the darwin bombing or something like that and and, yeah because it does but yeah i i think that this is some of the best stuff in the film though and it definitely is very less baz lermany but like i think 
the action works well. I mean, this is where I think Hugh Jackman absolutely shines. Like that bar scene when he's basically just like, yeah. you did not oh, just say that. He's like, broken down. Like you get him a fucking drink. Like that's just epic and stuff like that where, again, you know, you would argue that this movie is not completely Oscar worthy. But again, you would probably agree that the people have been nominated for lesser things than this role mm-hmm. that Hugh Jackman does. And it was considered before it was released, like Hugh Jackman, Nicole Kidman, they're going to be nominated for Oscars. I'm literally seeing in the month after, and happy one month anniversary to Brendan Fraser winning an Oscar, by the way, <laughs> um, that the talk's already for next year for Oscar bait. And they're literally saying Margot Robbie for Barbie is probably going to be in, in, in contention. I'm like, really? For Barbie? Um, <laughs> unless it's going to be some dramatic, like, epic that we don't know what it's going to be about. But, um, yeah, like, it's 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 totally different. But, like, I still like it. Like, I like the darkness of it. The, the bombing sequence is really, really cool. Um, it's sort of brushed over pretty quickly, and we're going to get a very fictional scene of Japanese troops invading an island. But, um, <laughs> you know, like, it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting. Um. He finds he goes to the island here. He finds Nulla. Uh, all the kids there. They're gonna take them all away. There's a bit of an action. This is a like you said. The soldiers are there. Yeah. Uh, his Not friend. Real. His yeah. His friend sacrifices himself so they can get away. Um, you do have another sympathetic moment here where David Wenham finds out his wife is dead, and you actually do feel for him. But again, it just sort of comes out of nowhere. It's like it's all the kid's fault. He's holding me back. <laughs> uh, that just sort of comes out of nowhere. Uh, and <laughs> another one of these things where it's like, realistically, this makes no sense at all. When Nicole came in again, is think they've lost everything. You see all the smoke from everything burning, all the stuff on the water. They're about to, Ben Middleton's about to evacuate her. And she hears somewhere over the rainbow playing from hundreds of feet away in the water over the roaring sounds of fire and people screaming and evacuating. And she hears this tiny harmonica playing somewhere over the rainbow. Same hearing as Kiefer but- in a helicopter, clearly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> But but again, I like the way that this is incorporated in, and it's cheesy, but it actually does kind of work. Um, the uh, the the big reunion that they have here again, it's kind of a nice scene. Uh, they really didn't develop this well enough, and maybe the miniseries will, where they both thought each other were dead. Like you had these brief moments, but you needed more of this, and because the reunion feels kind of flat on their part. The reunion with the kid, great, but the reunion of them, I'm almost thinking in the back of my head, it's like, oh, that's right. They kind of thought the other one was dead because it's not made a big enough deal here. And, I, and part of that is like, you get the reactions from them, but you don't really have a dialogue scene. I'm not saying you need to spell it out for the audience, but give us some dialogue to illustrate why you're sad. Hugh Jackman, are you sad because they just burned a very nice building? <laughs> or are you sad because you think Nicole is dead? Because you guys are broken up. I think I I get it that he's sad that she's dead because he's trying to run well, into I, the building. He's trying to be like, oh my God, you, she's in there. She's in there. And they're saying like, she's dead. She's dead. Like I, I, but there's, dead. there's a difference between getting it as an understanding. And then there's a difference between getting it where you are making that emotional moment bigger and better than it would have been by not stating more, not, not building it a little bit. Yeah, it's a lack know. of build that it gets. I don't know if I agree because I think then kind of what solidifies is it is the bar scene when he's obviously so broken um, that, you know, he's kind of breaking down at that point. Like, and just cause you're broken up, Colin doesn't mean you still can't like have feelings and love someone. Like, I mean, like I know you, try it when Jamie leaves you, but I think <laughs> that uh, that means you'd have to have feelings though. But yeah, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't think I agree with that. We get this uh, moment here where David Wenham just decides to try to kill the kid. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't understand how Nicole Kidman is actually seeing this or Hugh Jackman seeing this. Again, 
you're establishing the, the the visual of how far apart they are, and it's like over there in the distance, a head that must be David Wenham and a gun. Look out, kid. Uh, I don't know how well this works with this, this, ah, <laughs> then uh, everything with David Wenham's death getting stabbed. Like it, it, it could have been handled a lot better. could have been shot a lot better. This isn't something where a director's cut's going to help it. It's, it's a, it's a poorly filmed death scene. Yeah, it's, yeah, I'd agree with that. And like, again, this is where I said earlier that Hugh Jackman was meant to die. The, the initial cut was Hugh Jackman gets killed in this scene, which again, I might argue might be more effective. Like you kind of sometimes yeah, need a I agree. tragic ending, but kind of would work in a way. But um, yeah, I, I like it is. I think the thing that makes it a little bit more like, huh, like the big evil villain of this film's died is kind of he's, he, and they're like he's got this spear through him. They cut away like, oh, we're fine, we didn't get shot. Let's go off to our farm, and then he's just like going like, uh, 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 and he falls down, and then like the cop sort of comes up and is like, hmm, looks up, sees that King George has done it. At that point, all of Australia realised they were racist and they stopped. They were yeah. like, hmm, Aboriginal man just killed a white man, but uh, Japanese just bombed us. We hate the Asians yeah. now. <laughs> Australians are fine. <laughs> like, yeah, kill That's them. a good point. But, like, even, why? But like, this is the thing. Like, this cop doesn't know that King, uh, what's his face, David Wenham wasn't, like, you know, like trying to kill another person sort of stuff. Like, why are they, like, jumping on King George? Because. Mm-hmm. He's the king. He's the baron owner of like all the cattle. And all of a sudden it's like, well, well fuck, we're being bombed now. Go Aboriginals. <laughs> See, and this is where that ending, this ending definitely, I'm going to, I'm almost going to contradict myself here. I'm going to say there's something different to it. But this ending is not the white savior ending because King George, the, 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 as we find out, the grandfather is the one who technically saves the day here and is the one who gets the kid in the end. But at the same time, I'm, I'm saying, I'm with you. I I want a little bit more of that. Where is the repercussion of this? I don't need a movie where King George ends up going to jail for this, but like, can we disguise it a little bit more? Because yes, there will be major issues with the people who are witnessing this one way or the other, where they're going to be like, ah, 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 you just killed a white man. (laughs) You're going away. It's 1942. Like, I'm sorry. Like, I mean, people think the world- This is too green book. (laughs) People think cops are racist now with like black people and like, you know, crimes versus white people. 1942. Like, he's dead in a second like and people would applaud that they'd be like breaking news before the news and in other news today the white folk killed another one of those savage aboriginal people because he was a murderous bastard now let's get to the wizard of oz (laughs) now i will say the final scene here i really do like this dramatic scene again i think it's because the the nulla relationship is is built so much better but the goodbye scene but i found something really hilarious about this and that's the fact that as far as i know nicole kidman doesn't know what happened um they're speaking in an Aboriginal language. Nella is going, and in her mind, she's probably thinking, oh, he's going to take him on that walkable thing. Okay, I hope you have a good time. I'll see you for dinner. And King George is like, he's my grandson. I will take him off your hands now. I thank you for taking care of him. We will never see you again. And because she doesn't understand what he's saying, is she like, see you for dinner. <laughs> have a good time, Nella. <laughs> it's, it's, it's. Maybe I'm making more out of this. It's a good dramatic scene, but like she doesn't know the language. So does she actually know that Nella is never coming back? Maybe she's actually secretly happy. She's like, ah, <laughs> thank God for that. See you, Nella, you little shit. Getting to the islands and all that sort of stuff. Um, Yeah, I, I didn't really think about it that way, but it does make sense. But um, I think like, I guess the only thing you'd have if you killed off Hugh Jackman here, this would kind of be a real tragic ending for Nicole Kidman because she's lost her lover and now she's lost Everything, her kid. Yeah. But that's when maybe you have her at the end like, 
oh, I'm pregnant. I'm actually not barren in the vagina. And then, like, just <laughs> go along that way. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a solid. And I think you can't end this any other way. You, you're doing these subtle undertones of, like, just because it is doesn't mean it has to be. And, like, you know, oh, Australia was bad. Like, imagine if you ended this movie with her just, like, sitting around a dinner table eating a, you know, Sunday roast with little Nulla. Like um, you literally have stolen this child away from its culture. You are literally uh, saying that oh, the white Australian policy was great. Bring it back, <laughs> and don't clip that, Max Dawson. That was not fucking racist. <laughs> um. All right, so let's get through critically before we get to box office here. Fifty-five uh, percent of Rotten Tomatoes. That's actually lower than I thought. I thought. Yeah. See, I don't know. It's interesting that they break up on Wikipedia here the reviews for different countries because I've never really seen that before. But maybe it is something where it's like it was very much swayed by one country because I don't remember this being it was sort of like, oh, that movie was like, OK, it's not Baz Luhrmann quality film, maybe a little bit forgettable, but not a bad 55 percent is like, oh, that's barely gotten there, you know, um, but they do break it up with different review here. So Australian review, Jim Shembri of the Sydney Morning Herald, I'm sure you worked there, uh, said the film <laughs> is for fine. The, I worked <laughs> for the company that owned it, but uh, not quite for that paper. You owned him. Actually, no, you sorry. owned Jim Shembri. I worked Shembry. for the company that owned the Daily Telegraph, the other Sydney paper. No, I didn't work for that mob. Fuck, stop, fuck the Sydney Morning Herald. No. Uh, but he wrote, the film is fine and never boring, but boy, is it overlong. He then put, more importantly, local films with black themes are or major indigenous characters tend to do poorly so if australia succeeds here it could represent a breakthrough um uh what are the australian mark naglazes of mm. uh, a western australian from perth um uh was oh th- th- this this is more criticizing other reviews that's bizarre uh <laughs> oh, was that the one where he's <laughs> he bagging out the news corp reviews? yeah 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 it's a news corp is what i worked owned- for yeah uh, unrelenting awfulness that lurches drunkenly from crazy comedy to Mills and Boonish melodrama in the space of a couple of scenes, which I actually kind of agree with what he's saying. Yeah. I, I can't, I can't say anything about the whole, uh, you know, 20th century Fox owning or whatever. Uh, British review, four out of five stars from Anne Barrowclough of the times from uh, England. The film defies expectations in what turns out to be a multi-layered story. It describes as an Australia, of the 40s that is at once compellingly beautiful and breathtakingly cruel. Uh, U.S. critics, uh, let's see here. David Anson from Newsweek said, Kidman seems to blossom in her Lerman's direction. She's funny, warm, and charming. And the erotic charge between her and the gruff hunky Jackman is delicious. Uh, ooh, delicious. <laughs> mm, delicious. <laughs> uh, Andrew Saris, though, New York Observer said, Australia is clearly a labor of love and a matter of national pride. It is also a bit of a mess. Uh, I, I must confess that I might have been harder on Mr. Lerman's film if it had not remained in trance by Miss Kidman ever since I saw her in Philip Noyce's Dead Calm in 89. Uh, is Dead Calm, that's not an Australian movie, right? Is it? Is it? I don't know. I don't know. That's, that's the one with Sam Neill. So. Dead Calm uh, is an Australian psychological thriller with Sam oh, Neill, Nicole Kidman, one. and Billy Zane. No, see, have you ever seen that movie? No, I have not. It's it's the three of them stranded on a lifeboat together. Oh. It's amazing. How are we not to cover that? Literally, the cast <laughs> is three people. <laughs> yeah. Sam Neill, Nicole Kidman, and Billy Zane on a boat? Sign me up. <laughs> uh, IMDb reviews. So, I mean, this one, are we going to want to go with a one star or a ten star? Uh, uh, I feel like one of us does a one, one of us does a ten, because it is a bit of a middle yeah, ground. just like brain it? candy. Yeah. I'll do the one star. Um. <laughs> Tom Walsh Co. That's his company name, apparently. (laughs) Why didn't someone warn me? (laughs) The title of it. I had no idea going in except the few bits of the trailer I saw. I was expecting an epic thriller. 
with a solid storyline. Instead, you get all the old stock trite Australian perceptions. Uh, Aboriginal grandfather can listen to the birds sing and tell you when the second coming of Christ will be. The painfully cute half-breed boy who can outsmart NASA scientists. Um, the, the, the proper English royal dame that can outride, outfight, outlast any grizzled outback veteran. Uh, I thought this was a comedy. Ten minutes in, maybe it was. Actually, it kind of was. Uh, there's a ten. There, you go for a ten-star one now. All right. So Delumbra one seven three. This is done on the eighteenth of February, twenty eighteen. So not you know a bit removed. Ten years on from the film. Great movie. Don't listen to negatives. I never take the time to do this, but after reading the reviews of this film, I felt I had to defend it. Beware the cynics. Stay away, you art house film lovers. This is a sweet romantic throwback film to earlier days when movies actually made you feel good inside. Nicole has gotten flack for being too stiff. Well, guess what? She is playing a stiff British aristocrat. She was amazing, as always, and the actor that plays Nala is a delight. I looked him up to see where he is now, but can't find anything. (laughs) If he was true, if he was smart, he retired from working in crazy land and is living on a farm in Australia somewhere. And I love all of the Wizard Oz references, so back off! Watch with enjoyment. <laughs> back, the, the, back off. That's like, take a step back. Okay? I love that. I looked him up. I can't find anything. Hopefully he's <laughs> on a farm somewhere. <laughs> uh, box office. Uh, so, I mean, worldwide box office, $211 million. Like, I think that's that's pretty good. I mean, the movie costs $130 million. Now, of course, they're not making $211 million profit off of it. So probably did lose a bit of money. But this is where there's big differences in different countries because uh, North America... This movie's overall box office gross is basically, what is it, $50 million? Uh, Let me find the exact number here. Uh, $49.5 million in North America, which is quite low. I mean, Moulin Rouge did over $100 million. I think Romeo and Juliet even did like $100 million. Uh, It it is interesting reading here that, um, I guess when the movie came out, the opening weekend in Australia, over $6 million, which... Big deal in Australia. When you're looking at... The, yeah, huge. We were talking about what a big deal it was for that tomorrow when the, the day after tomorrow started. <laughs> uh, that one opened with something like $3.5 million, and that was later than this. That That's a massive opening uh, in Australia, and even knocked off Quantum of Solace. Yeah. Here in North America, however, um, the movie didn't even open... It barely opened in the top five. Uh, now, this is, of course, Quantum of Solace is out around the same time period. Uh, but the Thanksgiving weekend, which is the biggest weekend in United States for um, uh, box office, it's like the highest grossing of the year. Uh, Four Christmases opens at number one. <laughs> There's a forgotten movie. Wow. Twilight in second place. Ugh. Bolt in third. Quantum of Solace in fourth. Australia... Uh, other than Four Christmases with the other major movie to be opening on Thanksgiving, open only in fifth place with $20 million. Now, that's a five-day weekend, too. So, I mean, definitely underperformed. But I do find these things funny when, like, studios will try to justify it. This one comment here, Fox officials basically were ta- saying, we're happy with the numbers. Yeah. And they were only expecting about $18 million opening gross for the film. They then pointed out that Baz Luhrmann's other film, Moulin Rouge, Strictly Ballman, Romeo and Juliet, start out slow and then built momentum. Those are all movies that started with limited release. There's a difference when you're opening in 3,000 theaters and you open with less than something well, like Moulin Rouge. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, domestically, 49 million actually is not fantastic, I guess, for a film of this scale. But, I, I mean, yeah. technically, this is the most success, uh, second most successful Australian film in history behind only Crocodile Dundee. And I remember when this was released that they were basically saying, like, this is going to go on and because it was open so strongly that they were like, this is going to go on to be the most successful film of all time. And again, this is a list which, if I look at it, 
I question it. Like, I mean, Peter Rabbit is number nine on this list. Um, you know, like Elvis is now the fourth most successful Australian film of all time. Like, I, like I get it. Yeah. It technically is an Australian film because it's made by those sort of, you know, companies it's made by Baz Luhrmann. So I understand it, but I don't know. Is, is, P, is the Truman show an Australian film? Cause it's directed by Peter Weir. No. Um, like yeah. it's sort of that, but so yeah, like the top five, and maybe, maybe like each year I need to pick one of these films so we can, and I don't know if you've got a list of the Canadian films, we can do that too, but we've done Crocodile Dundee. We've now done Australia. Third is Babe, which why have we not done Babe? We should do Babe next mm. year. Elvis. I mean, I'm not doing that for Australia, Canada month. I'm sorry. Yeah. As much as I love the film. And then Happy Feet, like again, technically Australian. It's a Hollywood funded, but Australian. Yeah, talent, where's you know? Lion? That's... Like Lion, I would argue, because that is set in my home state. Like it's it's, mm. a, it's got a huge Tasmanian story filmed in Tasmania. So we could do Lion. We already talked about exploring, like, because we very much stuck to these are movies that are can- Canadian or Australian studios, Canadian or Australian directors. It, yeah. Basically, you have to check all the boxes. And, and I can't remember what I think it was just during Oscar month. We were talking about how here in Canada, women talking is not considered a Canadian film only because it was produced by or some of the producers were American and you had an American studio behind it. Yeah. But meanwhile, a movie that is produced by a Canadian, but for an American studio is a Canadian film. So it's like, so it just comes down to the title of producer because everything else about woman talking is a Canadian film. Yeah. Next, I, we want to branch out a little bit in future years because like some of these like, one that I definitely want to do next year, Eastern Promises. You know, it is 100% a Canadian film, but your screenwriter is British and you have Naomi Watts and Viggo Mortensen starring who aren't Canadian. And the movie's not set in Canada, but it's like, but everything else is Canadian still, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean like, Elvis, I just don't ever picture Elvis as an Australian film. Like, yeah, I mean, it's, you have an Australian guy making it. <laughs> Nothing else. Filmed in Australia? Sure. But like. <laughs> Aquaman's an Australian film, you know? The, the, the uh, Star Wars prequel's an Australian film. Well, it, uh, Mission Impossible 2 is more Australian. <laughs> yeah. uh, John Woo at least is from a place cl- closer to Australia <laughs> than uh, an American director would be. Um, I mean, overall, uh, domestic box office that year, this is 58th for the year. Wow. This movie was outgrossed by such classic films that everybody remembers, like The Tale of Despero, oh. The Forbidden Kingdom, oh. The Strangers, Step Up to the Streets. Oh, I think that's the one I uh, saw. <laughs> Baby Mama. Um, 2008 is a very forgettable year. Like you have, you know, The Dark Knight, Iron Man, Indiana Jones, King of the Crystal Skull. Hancock is the fourth highest grossing film of 2008. Hancock. Everyone forgets it, that like, movie, don't they? Yeah, it's 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 a, it's a very odd year. Just going through Wally, the box Wally, Overrated, Kung Fu Panda, Madagascar, Twilight, Quantum Solace. Horton Here's a Who. God, Sex, Sex in, the in the City. Sex in the City film. Mama like, Mia. Marley and Me is the 14th highest grossing film of the year? Chronicles of Narnia, Prince Caspian. Uh, that was the third mummy, but Brendan Fraser. Uh, <laughs> and Journey to the Center of the Earth. He was in two more than 100 million. Oh, you don't mess with the Zohan. Great movie. That was Beverly Hills Chihuahua. <laughs> <laughs> when are we doing Beverly Hills Chihuahua, Colin? <laughs> uh, plot keywords. Uh, maybe we'll strike gold with a, uh, another dead duck month here. Uh, Prejudice month. Gathering uh, wood month. (laughs) Falling off a horse month. Uh, Well, I'm kind of curious about that. Falling off a horse month. The Last Duel. uh, National Impoons Animal House. Wonder Woman 84 and Unforgiven. Um, They fall off a horse in Wonder... Oh, I guess in the opening scene. Um, Gathering wood month. We could do The Glass Castle. (laughs) Sleepy Hollow. Night of the Living Dead. We've already done that. And Australia. Aw. 
I, I love this. This is just like, does this need to be as so specific as it is? Kissing while having sex month. <laughs> well, Colin, so they not do just that. Kissing, you should look that up. Not just kissing, not just having sex, kissing while having sex. Where the Crawdads sing is number one. The Departed, Charlie Wilson's War and Eyes Wide Shut. Tom Cruise. Oh. Hand on someone's butt month. <laughs> That might be a front runner for next year at this point. Kung Fu Hustle, Along Came Polly, Australia, and Less Than Zero. Uh, <laughs> wow. Um, uh, interracial yeah. relationship, Ben, they don't do that. Dead body laid out on table month. Um, this this one, I don't even remember where this is in the movie, but tuberculosis month. <laughs> uh, that's, how, that's how Hugh Jackman's wife dies. Oh, is it okay? Well, yeah. Fight Club, Parasite, Tombstone, and Dracula. <laughs> Hang on. Here's a very specific one, Colin. Continent in title month. Uh, <laughs> now, out of Africa's got to be in this, right? Surely. Australia. <laughs> Madagascar 3. Oh, Europe's most wanted. Europe. Okay, that's, that's not a continent. The food that built America. And then number four, OSS 117 from Africa with love. No, out of Africa? Not there? Um... Wow, they're all featuring Europe and Africa. Shocking Africa. Oh, there's a movie called Antarctica. So you've got Australia, Antarctica. Where's the continent, like, universe? I want the seven-film uh, universe. Australia, the sequel, Antarctica, followed by North America, South America, Asia, Europe, and the biggest of all, Africa. Uh, I have a feeling you're going to buy this movie. You might yeah. surprise me. Yeah. You're buying it? Yeah, I'm yeah. buying it. Oh, see, and I'm ranking it number one for the month. Controversial. But oh, I'm doing that's it. definitely controversial. It's just fun. Um, I just can put this on and watch it. It's just fun. There, I mean, all, all the movies we've done have fun elements to them. That might end next week. It's not necessarily the most fun thing, although it's a great movie. Uh, not the most fun movie. But uh, see, I was coming into this feeling like this movie is definitely more enjoyable, but I still think it's a bin. I, I, I'm, I'm going to very, very low rent this movie, Yay. so it's a win. That's a win from us talking about it in the past. It is definitely the bottom. Of my, it will be bottom of my list uh, for this month. Yay. But th- this, of all Basil, when we did Kids in the Hall last week, I said I'm buying this movie. Although, if there's anything the Kids in the Hall have done that deserves a rent, it's this movie. This is to me like. I will rent this movie, but if there's anything Baz Luhrmann has done that deserves a bin, it probably would have been Have you seen this. all of his movies? Have you seen Strictly Ballroom? I, you know, Jamie owns it. I'm sure she's shown it to me at some point. I don't really have much memory of it. I, like, it's been a long time. We watched it in school, and I remember watching Romeo and Juliet. I remember not liking Romeo and Juliet as a kid, but that was just because, you know, whatever. And I've never seen The Great Gatsby, so I think that of all these films, now, I've not seen The Great Gatsby. Moulin Rouge Great is Gatsby... I saw Great Gatsby when it came out. I feel like the energy of that movie was too overwhelming for me, and I think I watched it late at night too. So I remember nothing about it. But I've read the Great Gatsby book since then and want to rewatch it. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, this is this is definitely the bottom I, of his films, right? I, I mean, look, I maybe wouldn't agree with that just because again, it's been a long time since I've seen Romeo and Juliet. Never seen Great Gatsby, and I enjoyed Strictly Ballroom. I, I was younger, but it's been a long time. But um, like I, I saw the Moulin Rouge stage show in the last couple of months, and just made me want to watch the filming. And I always remember liking Moulin Rouge when I saw that. And I've probably only seen that once. I used to listen to the soundtrack a lot, but I mean, Ewan McGregor, Nicole Kidman, Kylie Minogue's in it. Come on. Maybe that'll be an Australian film we can cover. <laughs> um, and that, that was the first time Nicole Kidman sang. That was, I think when she sang somewhere over the rainbow in this movie, just weird side note, 
it was probably like, okay, we have to have you singing if you're back in a Baz Luhrmann movie, because <laughs> otherwise there's no context. Well, one of the trivia bits I read of this was that Nicole Kidman basically said yes to this without even seeing a script, and she basically talked Hugh Jackman oh. into it, going like, uh, uh, come on, it's Baz Luhrmann. I'm always going to say yes. Crikey! Crikey! <laughs> That's the word she used. Uh, no, yeah, this will be third for me. I'm still undecided between tomorrow when the war <laughs> began. I think that's so that I finally tomorrow got it right. Tomorrow when the, war, when began. the war began. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm still undecided between that and brain candy, which one I prefer. Um, but next week we are going to be talking the sweet hereafter. This is a movie that multiple times has been named in the top 10 greatest Canadian films of all time. It was the first Canadian film to actually get nominated in a, not best picture, but best director category. 1997, the year of Titanic, LA Confidential, Goodwill Hunting, as good as it gets. Uh, this got a Best Director nomination for Adam Agoyan. He basically is was, I guess, you know, until Denis Villeneuve came around. He now moved on, but uh, the king of Canadian cinema. Um, it's got a very dark subject matter. Uh, I saw this movie when it first came out because it was a big deal and it was Canadian. I didn't watch it for years. Watched it last year, or the year before. Really enjoyed it. Uh, now years later. And most importantly, it has a 24 actor in there. Maybe not the one that we'd be most excited to talk about, but uh, she's dead. So rest in peace, Alberta Janet Watson. Not Green. from Janet. <laughs> so set in British Columbia. There you go. Um, yeah, I, I literally know nothing about this film. Uh, you've warned me that it's not like something that I think I would like usually. Or Well, I'm, I'm curious about that because um, when we do Oscar month, we do movies that like tar that I'm surprised. Oh, you actually like that. I would say go into this movie expecting as, as if we were doing Oscar month in 1997 or 1998. Uh, it is a lot less arty than I think I remembered it. Like when I saw this, I was much younger and I remembered it as being very art house. Uh, it, it, it definitely has like the timeline kind of moves all over the place. So you often don't know what's going on, but it, to me, this was a lot more coherent and, and less art house ish than I actually remembered it being. And I like, just cause I'm a, bit of a commercial pop Madonna lover doesn't mean that I don't enjoy a, appreciate a bit of art house every now and then, you know, I, I work on the Oz network. We're very art house. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm intrigued to watch it again. I literally know nothing about it. I, I mean, I think I'd heard of it, um, but yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm hosting it. So uh, barrel of laugh ahead, right? And we got a lot of great Canadian actors in this movie and Bruce Greenwood. You definitely would know him from a lot of things. He, he, kind of became a big deal for a while in like the early 2000s. Um, you got Alberta Watson, like I said, who was in 24. Uh, you got uh, Maury Chaikin. There's a great actor. He Maury was in Mystery Povich. Alaska. Maury Povich. That's right. Maury Povich, uh, the star of this movie. Um, and you get Academy Award winner Sarah Pauly back when she was like 16, 17 years old and was just acting and wasn't uh, an Academy Award winning screenwriter or director. Um, cool. So great movie. Cool. Uh, that will wrap up our month, and you can also listen to our 24, and um, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 is probably the next major thing we'll be reviewing, and I don't even know when I'm going to see that, but uh, I'm sure we'll... When's it out? May 5th, uh, which is no, right in between my kids' birthdays. And that's right, I'm, I'm going to have my kids' birthday party that day, so we've got plans. Yeah. So if we're going to review that, it'll be I'll review probably... Fatboy Slim. I'll review my kid's birthday party. We'll make it for Patreon. So, so I didn't get invited <laughs> to your kid's birthday party. I see how it is. All right. Well, we're having it at a place called Kid City, which is like uh, an indoor park for kids. Yeah. You, there's, you pic- <laughs> not your well. pictures there. Do not admit this man. <laughs> I, I know it very well. Good memories. Fond memories of, of that place. Yep. 
Um, stay tuned for Patreon for our reviews of Fatboy Slim and Kid City's kid birthday parties. Um, my name is Colin, and uh, I'm not Jesus Christ, but I'll give it my best shot. And my name is Drongo Brothers, and move along. Rah, rah, rah. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Oz Network. Make sure you never miss an episode by subscribing to the podcast by Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or by copying our RSS feed into your preferred podcast provider. And while you're there, please drop us a rating and leave us some feedback. You can also be sure to stay up to date with all the latest episodes and happenings from the show, as well as finding out how you can get involved in upcoming episodes by following our social media pages on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as getting everything you need under one roof at the oznetwork.net. Thanks again for listening, and we'll speak to you next time. like exclusive stuff yes sir do you like having access to your favorite podcast hosts in a way like never before yeah absolutely do you wish you had access to our old survivor oz episodes that you can't find anywhere else online oh yeah if you answered yes to one two or all of those questions then get excited because the oz network is now on patreon That's right, your favourite podcast has jumped on the Patreon bandwagon to enable a better listening experience for you, our listener. For more details, simply head to www.patreon.com forward slash oznetwork where you can sign up for as little as $3 a month. It'll be the best decision you make since that last bad one you made.